This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumboCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumboCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. We just found this new study from the uh, FDA that you should not be on this for over 12 weeks at a time. I was on it for four and a half years. You know, this is all based on their testimony, some footage from his ring camera, but it, I just completely blacked out. Decided to leave, got in my vehicle and started driving home. At some point I'd pull over, got my pistol out of my car and just started wildly shooting it into the air and shot up my own car, put a couple rounds into traffic Fortunately, no one was injured. What happened is the medication caused this incident. I'd gone through all the procedures to, to be on this and it was helping, you know, it was addressing some of the problems. It was not a criminal action. You know, I didn't intend to do that. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 12 years in the United States Marine Corps, half of which in the infantry and the other half in MARSOC as a raider. He's the CEO of EBS Defense Consulting Company. He's the founder of Project Vetworks, and he's currently embroiled in a legal battle with misprescribed VA meds, which ultimately led to a world star of hip-hop event. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Michael Block. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I don't mean to make light of uh, your situation. On the same token, you got to keep a sense of humor, right? So You have to. Uh, what's the last full book that you read? Last full book? Uh, hard, hard copy, because uh, I, I do a lot of Audible, but the last hard copy book was Call Sign Chaos. Mm, okay. It's uh, General <coughs> Manis's book. What do you think of him? Uh, I look up to him as a as a leader of Marines. Uh, you know, I was in First Mardiv. Uh, he was our commanding general, and that is the the general Mattis that I remember. Um, obviously, he was our Secretary of Defense. I served under him as a intelligence contractor for JSOC. Um, 
you know, and so the the policies and and uh, way that he did business directly affected us, obviously. Um, and you know, you can't you can't get too in the weeds when things happen uh, the way that they did. I, I think you know, if if we hold someone's feet to the fire for every decision they make, uh, you take away all the good things and the the positive things that they yeah. contributed. I think you see that with police, not to get too far off in the weeds, but uh, in that same vein, like you'll ultimately force inaction on everything if, if people just get hammered for every fucking thing they do. But uh, I, yeah, I have mixed feelings. I, I you know, served under him uh, in Iraq. Uh, we were attached to the 1st Marine Division when he was there. Uh, but, you know, great memories of him there, kind of mixed feelings as a sec def. I mean, that's a whole other fucking show. But uh, what's your favorite childhood memory? Uh I, I do not have just one memory that stands out, rather a collective of memories from kind of like my early adolescence. Uh, when I was 15, I got uh, sent out to a youth ranch in Where at? Uh, Wyoming. So it was right outside of Cody, Wyoming. Was it like a wilderness therapy kind of thing? Kind of. It was, uh, you know, definitely for boys, uh, troubled boys, I guess. Um, I was sent there just for a summer to pulled me out of my environment was uh getting into trouble with girls and i grew up in a pretty strict catholic family and yeah uh i was the oldest of seven you know so my parents had to make some hard decisions move me out of the out of the home to you know, prevent me from taking the rest with me uh and you know i got there and it was uh, a culture shock kind of like boot camp you know um but I immediately hit a stride and just started falling in love with it and ended up staying there finishing high school. Really? Oh yeah. Um, as far as the, the camp or the, I guess the environment, was it like sleeping outside or was it in cabins or what? Both. Um, so there's, I mean, we had a, a kind of down in the high desert uh, base camp kind of thing. Uh, it was, you know, full ranch farm, uh, several thousand head of cattle, about 30 head of horses, uh, plenty of different plots, you know, farmland grown alfalfa and, and whatnot to feed the animals. Then we had a, a sunlight or, a, uh, it was up in the sunlight, uh, mountain range, but it was a mountain pasture kind of thing. Oh, okay. Uh, so during the summer, summer months, we'd move the cattle up there. Oh, nice. And, and it was, I mean, like 40 mile trek on horse, yeah. you know, overnight. Uh, and then up in the mountains, we had a cabin, so we'd stay up there. That's cool. Shit, oh, it was incredible. Like, yeah, it sounds like a, a great experience. Uh, what's something that you haven't tried that you want to? Something that I have not tried. And you well, can't say anal because that just – No, well, you can say it. <laughs> yeah, well, the <laughs> – oh, you said the haven't that, tried. The thing there is I would have to <laughs> want it, right? Uh, man, you know – uh, I think, okay. So during my time in the teams, I never got an opportunity to go to free fall. Um, I've done a little bit, but I haven't like finished getting my, uh, a license. Yeah. So I want to do that. Yeah. Right on. Uh, what is your morning routine? Uh, and this is a normal day when you're in town, uh, kind of in the routine, if you will, but also just like the first few hours. <clears throat> yeah. First few hours. So I've got three small girls, five, three, one. Uh, my routines in, in the first part of the morning is revolving around them, getting them up, getting them ready, 
out the door. Uh, our five-year-old just started kindergarten, so it's uh, yeah. a little bit of a, a different change of environment. But sure. as soon as I get home, um, kind of go through my own routine where uh, I like to get outside, get some sun, grounding, get my shoes off right on the earth. Uh, I go through kind of a routine of beverages so start with coffee and then uh i've been recently doing mud water yeah uh you know and just trying to get more natural you know uh substances and ingredients into my body yeah get away from a lot of the chemicals and trash yeah um you know and then i'll do some kind of like meditative reflection and then just dive into my day yeah do you eat in the morning or no i just do a protein shake yeah yeah all right. Hey guys, I want to take a, a second to talk about ads. Um, and this is not an ad. This is me talking about the ads. I know that, um, you know, sometimes we get comments of, of people bitching about the ads. There's too many ads or they're too long or what have you. And I, I want to clear two things up, which is number one is that my slash our team's ability to bring you guests and, and bring them in and, and the accommodations and, and the entire process that it takes to produce these shows to the level with which we do uh, requires funding, you know, and the, the sponsors give us an ability to bring these shows to you. So while I understand that everybody wants zero ads and, and everything bunched together and, and what have you, this is how we, we bring this show to you. Uh, you know, we're a very small team. We're very fortunate to, to be able to do it. Uh, but we do still have to, uh, to pay bills and, and bring that to you. So keep that in mind. That's the first point. And the second point is that I can assure you with 100% accuracy is that there is not a sponsor or a product that I talk about on here that isn't something that I use. Okay. That, that I either regularly use or always use or have used. And, and I refuse to budge on that. Okay. So we, we get uh, offers for, for sponsors regularly that, that get turned down because it's not stuff that I use or would use. So Keep that in mind, uh, have a little bit of flexibility in terms of our ads and, and realize that they're products that I believe in, that I stand behind, and they're what, what make this show possible. So if you support these advertisers, these sponsors, that is supporting the show. Thank you. What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. In terms of your childhood, I mean, we talked about the high school portion. Uh, where did you grow up? Kansas. Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas. That's where uh, fucking Garmin's at, right? Uh, I don't know. I think, I think Garmin GPS Company is out of Lawrence. Okay. Um, how, how would you characterize or describe your childhood? It was the quintessential, you know, American dream for a boy growing up. Um, you know, I had some really close friends that I grew up with and we ended up joining the Marine Corps together. Uh, you know, so we were outside all the time. Yeah. You know, we, there was a, a lake nearby, We'd go camping, hiking, swimming in the lake, you know, all those things mm -hmm. get poison Ivy, like all, all this, yeah. it's just like the, the quintessential things that you think of drinking from the fire hose. Kick from the, the fire hose or the garden hose? Garden hose. <laughs> life, life is yeah. drinking from yeah, the fire no hose. Shit. That's no shit. Uh, did you have siblings? 
Yes. So I was the oldest of seven. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Three, three brothers, three sisters. Were your parents like fucking Mormon or what? Catholic. Oh, that's right. You, you, I guess you mentioned that. Um, man, seven fucking kids. What, what's the breakdown, boy, girls? Uh, three boys, three girls. Or four four boys, so I'm the oldest. Yeah, I got you. You had three three brothers, three sisters. Yeah, right. Man, that's crazy shit. And you were the oldest. Um, did you uh, did you play sports growing up? I did. I played soccer, baseball, and basketball. Yeah. Did you excel at any one of those things? Not really. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I, I did my best. Um, I was on a, a select team for soccer growing up through the years you know go to do tryouts or whatever uh my freshman year of high school I was on the jv team um for baseball i was a pitcher left-handed you know so it was a little bit of a, a dynamic to throw you know right-handed batters so yeah. i guess i did well um <clears throat> but it wasn't I, I think because of athletic ability it was just different dynamic yeah well um at, at what point in your high school tenure did you go to that camp uh 15 years old so okay. it was uh basically right after my freshman year of high school yeah was there a catalyst moment that your parents were like that's it you're going to fucking wyoming uh, no it was just a culmination of a bunch of like sneaking out at night and yeah just being a hellion yeah um once you went up there though so you, you stayed there and finished High school there or yes. a high school nearby? No, so they had a homeschool curriculum program. Oh, okay. So wow, so you did like half normal high school and then finished there, huh? Yes, that's wild. Uh, at what point did you decide the military was for you, and, and was there a catalyst or a motivation to serve that that kind of spoke to you? It was nine eleven. Oh no shit! Yeah, so that so, happened during that time. Uh, so I I had graduated high school a little early, so May of two thousand and one. I was seventeen. Uh, that fall in August, I went back to Wyoming, uh, for college and I was doing equestrian studies at Northwest college in Powell, Wyoming. And obviously that fall nine 11 happened. Um, I was still 17, you know, so I couldn't just join right away. Uh, I had to finish out that, that year. And then, uh, by that point I had enlisted with that, uh, I think they called it delayed entry program yeah. at the time. I was waiting for a boat space to to go to boot camp. You know, being out in Wyoming, there's just so many slots that get allotted, uh, and every, everything that kept coming up was MOSs I didn't want. Um, you know, so I kept delaying and ultimately got my MOS for infantry. Yeah, shipped what, out. Um, were the were the Marines your choice for a specific reason? Like, definitely. Uh, there's there's two friends that I grew up with. It was something that we talked about as boys. You know, we yeah. all had like K bars. And yeah. It was just something we looked up to. I can dig it. Um, you you joined the Marines, um, going through boot camp and ultimately getting to infantry, especially kind of right after nine eleven. What was the vibe like um, going through that? What did it seem different than what you expected, or, or how would you describe that? It it was a little different, uh, in that it was reality, right? Like you know, I had built up this idea in my mind about what the military would be like based on just movies that I'd been watching, you know, a lot of old Vietnam flicks. And, and I had this idea, um, that it would just be a certain way and, you know, nothing ever goes the way you imagine. 
Um, there's similarities and some correlations, but ultimately it was, uh, it was very real and raw yeah. and, and the vibe there was, was serious. Yeah. You know, we, we knew what we were going forward to do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, our, our cadre of instructors, drone instructors, you know, our school of infantry staff, everyone took it serious, you know, and they, they put their heart and souls into what they did for us yeah. training. Was it, uh, did you expect one thing and get a, get another, or was there anything that surprised you about going through it? Uh, actually just how hard it was. Really? Oh yeah. So you were expecting it to be easier? Well, I, I wouldn't say easier, but it I just kicked just, your ass more. It than kicked you. my ass. Yeah. Um, I was that recruit going to boot camp, barely doing three pull-ups, you know? Oh shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I, you know, I was, I was a smoker. I'd been working on, on a ranch, you know, yeah. where it's like brute strength can get you by. There's no endurance needed. Yeah. That's a trip, man. Um, yeah. No problems, though? You graduated? And yes. Did all right. And where did you go first? Uh, so I was assigned to 1-7, uh, stationed out of 29 Palms. And when I got to the unit, uh, there was a remain behind element because they were forward deployed to Iraq. They had just completed the invasion. And so the stop loss had just been lifted. And all of the Marines that you know were due to EAS and had been held in country for the for the invasion had just gotten back, uh, and you know they'd haze the shit out of us. Yeah, oh, I can yeah. imagine coming back war heroes. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, well. So all right, so if you you were in college when nine eleven happened, by the time you got to your first unit, it was post invasion of Iraq. So um, how, how long? I mean, did you finish that first year of college? Or how long did I, I you did, uh, and because I had you know the standard twelve credits, uh, Marine Corps had a program where if you have fifteen college credits, they'll meritoriously promote you in boot camp. Oh, I got you. Um, so you know, I used that extra time while I was waiting for that bow space. Yeah. To just get a couple extra courses and I got you. That's have smart. That. Is it E two or E three? Uh, it was E two. Yeah, that's better than fucking E one, I guess, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, all right, so you you go to twenty nine pounds, you're getting the shit hazed out of you. What what's the the worst hazing you ever got? <laughs> worst hazing? Oh man! Uh, How much time do we have? Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, it, I guess I'll just stick with then. I mean. It was rough. I we, mean, like what, like what in particular happened? Uh, so we're in full combat gear, gas masks, just, you know, doing PT. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, you know, the seniors, they're all drinking, you know, and so they started just going down this rabbit hole of, uh, you know, the hazing involved indoctrination where, you know, it's like, all right, we're going to make this somewhat beneficial to you. We're going to teach you about what you need to know going forward for Iraq. Yeah. Um, you know, so we were getting hazed while learning SOPs. <laughs> <laughs> they, they got carried away and a lot of dudes ended up with black eyes. And yeah. There's a command investigation. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it started off as being like getting smoked or beat or whatever, and then turned into where they're at, like actually putting their hands on you a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, to me. There's, of course, a fine line. I, I uh, caught shit in the comment section here recently uh, from an old interview. Um, I don't even remember which, which interview that they were commenting on, but they, you know, the, the gist of it was like, you know, hey, you know believing, believing that hazing is a valuable tool and, and applying it is, is what led to incidents like when the, the, there are a couple of SEALs killed a Green Beret in, in Africa and whatever, and 
you know, I, I don't know the ins and outs or specifics of that story. It sounds like there was something else going on, some sort of like, we'll call it an extracurricular activity outside of the military that they were involved with, I think. Uh, and, and I would just disagree. I mean, everybody's entitled to their opinion. I, I do think that it plays a role, but I want to caveat that with not unfettered and completely just, you know, whatever the fuck goes. Like, it, it's a tool. And just like a hammer can be used to build a house or you can fucking kill somebody with it. Like it needs to be used appropriately, and, and that's an important distinction to make. Like if we've talked about hazing a, a few times on this show, and and uh, you know I, I am a proponent of it in certain situations, and if it's used, you know how how it can be beneficial, and I and I think it can be. But I just wanted to throw that out. I'm curious what what are you? I, absolutely. I I totally think that there's a place for it um, when it's constructive. You know, there's uh, and remedial. You know, absolutely right, and and that's where the the fine line falls yeah. right like that's yeah. a gray area yeah you know um there there is something to learning something underneath physical duress yeah it sticks with you for sure better yeah um you know so so i think there's value yeah um all right so you're there getting hazed learning the ropes uh, how long were you there before you ended up deploying with the infantry uh, so it was about two and a half to three weeks. Jesus. Oh yeah. No, so it, was it was turn quick. and burn. Huh? Yeah. We're getting issued our gear out in the sandbox, just yeah. training every single day. What was going through your mind of, I mean, cause boot, boot camp in Marine in the Marine Corps is a little longer uh, and then you have infantry school, but I mean, ultimately you'd been in the military less than a year at this point. Right. Did that cross your mind of thinking like, dude, I fucking, I'm, I know this is what I signed up for, but am I ready for this? Did that, did you think about that at all? No, I was no. too young and naive. Yeah. And just like fucking let's do it. Yeah. 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 You know, there's, there's uh definitely something to how the military kind of pulls you in and, uh, and reframes your mindset you <laughs> conditions. Know? Yeah. Conditions. Brainwashes. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely what it is. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. I just felt invincible and yeah. I was surrounded by yeah. everyone that had, you know, those same feelings. Uh, and it just, you know, it builds and you yeah. reinforce that. Yeah. I, I think, uh, you need to be that way. Honestly, like I, I wouldn't want guys now going overseas that were unsure of themselves. Like I would rather have them be cocky. They're so confident than unsure and maybe timid, you know? Um, Absolutely. What was it like when you first went over and did you go to Iraq first? Yes. Yeah. Where did you guys go? Uh, so when we got there, we landed in, uh, well, actually we bust the whole way up from Kuwait to Babylon. Um, and this was, you know, I think late May, 2003, uh, you know, so there was, there was some small contact skirmishes happening on the roadways, but nothing crazy, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so we get to Babylon, we're doing security. Uh, so first Mardiv headquarters was right there. Um, I actually had a run in with general Mattis of the chow hall. I'm on, on patrol, you know, where there was one of our, our, uh, positions there and yeah, this giant dip in my mouth <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like rounding the corner of the building and he comes like right smack in my face. And the first thing he says, report your post Marine. No shit. Oh yeah. I gutted the whole thing. And I was like, Oh shit. You know, just hit my post, uh, hit the, you know, report the post. And he was like, all right, carry on. Oh, shit. You know, you could see it in his face. He knew exactly what he was doing. So yeah. he got that dip and he's like, yeah. Did it make hard. you sick? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I threw up. <laughs> yeah. I had that happen in, in buds, actually, because you're not allowed to dip at all in buds, technically. I mean, most guys still do, but 
I ran into the same instructor two days in a row at the same time at the same place, like walking out of the the pit bathroom uh, at lunch. And the first day he's like, fucking, he made me lay in this nasty fucking puddle of like overflow water and rinse my mouth with it and swallow it. Yeah. And then the next day, like walking in, he actually started laughing. He saw me with a big dip. He's like, you have got to be shitting me. <laughs> and I just fucking did had not, to do it again. Did not learn your lesson. Yeah, I got, yeah, I puked yeah. like a son of a bitch both times. But um, All right, so you're in Babylon. Uh, how long was that deployment and how, how active was it? Uh, so we were there May to October. Okay. Um, we ended up moving to Najaf at one point, uh, just the company was rotating out and in Najaf, we ended up doing handover with the Spanish multinational coalition, um, in about September. Yeah. Uh, we didn't really get into much. There were you know, just a couple like quick skirmishes, you know, on patrol and vehicle, you know, vehicle convoy, um, guy would pop out with an AK, you know, and the gunner and the Humvee would just take care of it. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, for the most part it was, uh, to me, it was a great opportunity to be embellished in, in that environment and not have to learn really hard lessons right away. It allowed me to, to kind of build on that. And yeah. then, you know, as my deployments continued, it obviously got heavier. Yeah. Uh, so you go home in October. How long were you home before you came back? Um, I want to say it was about a little under six months. No shit. Yeah. Yeah. And then we were right back into the rotation. Yeah. And was the, was the second one way different or was it just a little different? No, it was way different. It was, uh, just nine day. We, we got over there in 2004. So it was, uh, on the Iraq Syria border in Huseba. Um, Ambar province. So, you know, the heavy stuff. When, uh, when you first got there from the, from the day that you got there versus when you actually went out and got into the first, like, holy fuck moment, how, how long of a period of time was that? I think it was one, one or two days. Yeah. We were already getting mortared like the day we got there. And then, uh, so my platoon was on, uh, the border checkpoint. So at the time it was still open. Um, we had, tons of vehicles coming through from syria and uh at that point it, it had been long enough that foreign fighters were really starting to come in mm -hmm. uh the the first fight in fallujah had already occurred and it was building towards the second one uh so we we're we we're in huseba during phantom fury um all those foreign fighters coming through come in and get their rocks off and with us first uh, you know, so that, that first engagement, um, it was kind of like a complex attack. Uh, we were taking small arms fire rockets and, uh, or not rockets, but RPGs and, and the mortars. Uh, it was, it was a wake up. Yeah. I want to take a second to talk about something near and dear to my heart. And that is a staunch supporter of this podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. Uh, the hat sitting in front of me, uh, here on our coffee table here in the studio belonged to Glenn Doherty. His nickname was Bub. Uh, I did two platoons with him and his childhood best friend uh, and another colleague of theirs, uh, Sean is the best friend, TJ is their colleague, uh, started Bub's Naturals, which is a collagen and MCT oil company uh, in Bub's or Glenn's honor. And um, 
you know, for me, it's, it's uh, an absolute honor to be sponsored by and working with a company that, um, you know, was started in the honor of one of my closest friends and, and a guy that I went to war with. And, uh, you know, the, the Bubs brand is not only super quality, um, you know, collagen, uh, collagen powder as well as MCT oil powder, um, you know, but they also give back to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Uh, they donate proceeds from their product sales to the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation, which, uh, you know, to me just furthers, uh, you know, the, the mission set on Veterans Day. They give 100% back. So uh, I do believe it's the best collagen on the planet. Uh, I like to mix it in with uh, morning coffee. The MCT oil powder, the same thing. Uh, it mixes in very easy. It tastes great. Uh, and it just kind of adds everything that you want to start your day off from a brain health standpoint, from a joint support, gut support, um, you know, MCT oil and collagen are, are two components, especially as, as we age, uh, that are integral components to, uh, to health. And so, uh, to be able to work with Bubs Naturals and, uh, be able to, to work with them and, and sponsor a product that, uh, number one is a high quality product. And number two is, is so near and dear to, uh, you know, to my heart and to the mic drop podcast for, for who it, uh, was started for and what it stands for. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, amazing place to be. So, um, it is whole 30 approved. Um, it's, uh, sport certified, so you're not uh, going to run into any problems with that. Um, and I will say that, um, you know, right now they're, they're offering, uh, 20%, <clears throat> 20% off if you go to bubsnaturals.com and, uh, use the mic drop code. So, uh, I really highly encourage you to, to try it out, incorporate it into your day, day to day for joint health, for brain health, uh, for cognition, for gut health. And, uh, and to support an amazing organization that does a lot of things uh, in Glenn Bubb's honor. So uh, go to bubsnaturals.com. Mic drop is the code 20% off. Hey, guys, I wanted to uh, talk about something that I've incorporated into my daily routine, my morning routine, that has had a remarkable impact on my life. Uh, it's called BioPro Plus. Uh, it's a non-synthetic HGH uh, treatment. And, uh, you know, every year after puberty, your HGH levels naturally drop uh, and exponentially sometimes uh, can even drop by, by 50% by the time you're 35. Uh, I train jujitsu three, four times a week. I lift three, four times a week and BioPro plus uh, without question uh, enhances my ability to train more uh, days per week, harder, recover faster, uh, enhance performance. I cannot say enough good things about this product. I've been taking it for a few months uh, it's, it's remarkable and I will continue to, to do so. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, perform better, look better, feel better. Uh, I, I can't stress it enough. I have tried BioPro plus, uh, and I encourage you to go to bioproteintech.com. Uh, and if you want to get $30 off your first order, use the code Mike drop M I K E D R O P. And again, that's bioproteintech.com. I cannot stress enough. This stuff has uh, been a game changer for me as I've gotten older. What, uh, what was the, the operation that you were doing or did it happen where you were based? It, it just happened where we were based. They, so they, they attacked, they attacked us. I gotcha. On the daily. Can you, uh, d kind of describe how, how it went? Uh, yeah. I mean, we <laughs> returned fire. Uh, it was probably over in like 10 minutes though, you know, and it was, that was just life. Um, we averaged about 63 engagements a month. Holy and, fuck. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, we had have our posts get 
vehicle borne IEDs driven into them. Um, you have be out on patrol and suicide bomber just walk up into the middle of your patrol. Uh, sniper fire, RPGs, rockets on the base, uh, mortars. Um, we did a lot of, we had a, a, a section of force recon attached to us and we were their security element, kind of like uh, how the Rangers go out and um, we would go out and just do raids probably three to five a week driving around in AT or uh, AAVs, Humvees, uh, doing hard hits. And the, they're the, the element you guys are blocking force type stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We're out of court on, um, there were, there were quite a few of those raids that, you know, we're getting pulled into the rooms too. Really? Um, just, yeah. Jumping in the stack cause they're calling, you know, for reinforcements. Um, it was, it was heavy fighting IEDs all the time. And was that a six-month deployment? Uh, I think that one was seven, but yeah, yeah. that was about the standard. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there an, an overarching uh, mission set as to why you were there? Like when you got there, hey, here, here's our objective while we're here, and what was it? Yes. Uh, at the time, uh, I think it was the Civilian Defense Corps or something like that, CDC, uh, basically repurposing the old Iraqi army uh, to have a you know centralized kind of fighting force to defend the country against the, all the you know, insurgency and sectarian violence. Uh, so we were working with them, training them, working with the, the police, uh, so our kind of Iraqi police, local police there. And that was and, and then running that border checkpoint. Um, that was our initial mission. but probably, maybe a month or two before Phantom Fury kicked off, uh, the police vacated. The CDC just disappeared. The border checkpoint got shut down, and it was just straight combat operations. Wow. Um, were most of the times where you're going outside the wire as a blocking force for the Force Recon guys, or did you guys do some individual stuff? We did individual stuff as well. Uh, so we basically broke down into rotations between camp security, uh, external to the base. We had multiple OPs. Um, so we had one kind of the way that the city was set up, uh, it was in a rectangular pattern, um, you know, just standard grid streets, uh, boxed by four main avenues of approach. And our base sat on the Northeast corner of the town, um, right on the border. And basically the, the main street that was on the Northern approach was the market. And it ran all the way down to the East end road where there's uh, like a soccer field. And that was their poo site for launching mortars at us. Um, and we had pretty much a limit of advance about a third into the city. If we went beyond that, we we're getting engaged. Yeah. No questions asked. And uh, we started, we, we just had so much pressure on the base that we had to push elements out and and take off some of that pressure because, you know, all of our just life support was getting destroyed. Fuel bladders, chow hall, like everything. Um, and so we had to push out uh, into squad size elements. We'd go out in the middle of the night, break into these houses and take, you know, take them over, set up positions and just stand by to, to get in a firefight. Yeah. It was crazy. About how big was the city population? Ooh, I, 
you know, I don't know, maybe 30, 30,000. Yeah. Wasn't huge. Um, and when you guys were breaking into these houses, did you ever, I mean, trying to put like, even for the listener, like trying to put yourself in that position of like, you're sleeping fucking crew of dudes rolls in and just takes your fucking house over. How did you guys run into resistance with the families? How, how, how did, were there any instances where it went horribly wrong? None. Um, for the most part, you know, they were, they were understanding. Yeah. Uh, you know, at this time I was still super young in the Marine Corps and we didn't, we hadn't built into this idea of, you know, working with your, your host nation populace to overcome the insurgency kind of concept yet. But, uh, we still knew like the human connection, right? Yeah. Don't be a dick, you know? And, and, um, we knew that, you know, we're still kind of guests in their house, guests in our country. So we treated them as best we could. Did, did you guys have interpreters? We did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we also all picked up enough like broken Arabic to try yeah. and get along. Yeah. Did you guys pay them at all? No. Just, Hey, we're yeah. taking your shit over. <laughs> Fucking bear with us. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. Looking back on it, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, we were doing stuff that like even, when I got to Marsoc, you know, seemed pretty outrageous. Yeah. So none, none of those instances ever went, went bad. Oh, well with the actual families. Yeah. With our enemy always. Yeah. No, yeah, for, I will get into the, into the enemy part, but uh, with none of the families, no, nothing ever went. No, yeah, no. That's good. Yeah. Um, from, from the engagement with the actual uh, enemy combatants, um, are there any of those operations that you did? We'll, we'll stick with just the overtaking of the houses first before we get into some of the Marsoc stuff or, you know, the supporting of the Marsoc stuff. But did any of those engagements stick out as, as being super memorable? Uh, and, and if so, could you kind of walk us through like how it went? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was one event um, that really stands out because of how just, insane it was that we walked away unscathed uh it was christmas eve and like i said that pressure had just been building um and we had been getting some pretty serious engagements where there were complex ambushes um you know they'd be kicked off by ieds in the street uh individuals from rooftops engaging with pecans and rpgs everything you can imagine um, and ultimately we pushed out the, our entire platoon, three mutually supporting positions. We overtook three different houses on the East end, uh, road overlooking this kind of soccer field area. And, uh, we we're going to be out for two days or three days actually. And, uh, you know, we're, we're embedded and we're waiting for something to happen because the way it went down is, you know, we get into these houses and then the next day, those families don't go out and engage in the local populace. So it was pretty quick, you know, pretty easy for them and quick for them to figure out where the Marines are. And uh, typically they'd, they'd uh, engage us with like an RPG coming through a window on one of the posts, you know. And so uh, all day we're just waiting for this to happen. And it was like just eerily quiet. And it was a Friday, you know. So you remember in Iraq on Fridays, it's busy, mm. you know, call to prayer. Everyone's out in the markets. <clears throat> um, there was none of that. It was real quiet. And so 
we kind of anticipated that something was going to happen. And, um, you know, uh, just things being what they are and Murphy's Law kicking in, our radio shit the bed. And so our, our no comms plan uh, was to break down. And essentially, if we didn't miss our, our comm or we missed our comms window, we're going to break down. Uh, the cat team would come out. It was just their uh, basically Humvees with, you know, the heavy weapons on top. Uh, they would come out, pick us up, uh, do a couple dead drops, and then relocate us to a new site. And so we, we start breaking down because we know we've missed our comm window. Um, you know, we can kind of tell on the base things are starting to spin up. We can just hear Humvees starting and whatnot. Uh, and, and so... We know they're coming and we break down, we get ready, uh, you know, the, the entrance of this house and they just hit some serious, uh, ambushes. And it was, uh, to the point where the enemy had created blockades during the day, um, just in a spot where we couldn't see. And, you know, the convoys blacked out running on nods. So, uh, they get hit in this this ambush and you know lead vehicles blocked in um this is all coming from after action reports but um they ultimately the convoy gets split up trying to break contact and get out of this kill zone and uh you know at the same time this is happening we're getting engaged because we've now come out into the streets uh there's just tracer fire going everywhere we can't tell what's friendly fire and what's not um, you know, cause we got no comms. We can't make comms with the convoy. They're lost trying to find us. Uh, the, the chaos is just fully ensuing our mutually supporting positions. Uh, the other two squads, they're in, you know, full on combat engaging from their positions. Uh, you know, there's just dudes running in the streets and it was, it was crazy. I mean, we're taking gunfire from all directions. Um, you know, we can hear IEDs going off in the kill zone where this, you know, convoy is trying to get out. Finally, uh, one of the vehicles makes it to us and we're trying to break down and figure out who's going to take the first vehicle. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately a second vehicle starts rolling in. So we're like, all right, we're all getting out of here. Um, we could have get into the vehicle and I just remember watching my, uh, saw gunner running out in front of me. And rounds are just like skipping off the ground in front of him. And he's, you know, he's freaking out. He's goes to grab the door of the Humvee, rips the handle off of it. You know, and it's just like that, that just adrenaline, adrenaline yeah. pumping, you know, and then he's, he freaks out, you know, he locks <laughs> up and he's just smashing the door handle on the window, you know, like, let me in. I was like, asshole, get around the car. There's other doors, you know, like, let's go. Uh, we load up and. And we're trying to make it back to base. We just keep hitting all these barricades. And what were the barricades made of? Tires and shit, or what? Tires, dirt, uh, trash, yeah. just stuff. Yeah, and you know, it's the kind of thing where you know, we keep approaching that. There's going to be an IED. Yeah. Um, and and so we're trying to find alternate routes back. There's rounds skipping off the Humvee. Uh, you know, or our gunner, he's got a Mark 19. We're just handing him ammo cans. And we've got these, uh, you know, it was like that point in the war where up armor's just starting to come and it's like the doors yeah. and the windows, right? But they're the kind you can't 
on like roll down and, and engage through. Um, you know, so we're just kind of like sitting ducks in this Humvee and, and we're driving through and we can like literally see, like looking out the window, enemy combatants just engaging us in the street. Uh, and I remember rounding this one corner and this guy pops out of this courtyard with an RPG on his shoulder and we're moving away from him. So our, our ass is facing him now. And this is light skinned Humvee, you know, like if that round goes through the back, we're all done. And I just remembered like coming to that point. I was like, all right, this is it, you know, like I'm ready. And the gunner goes dry and he can't even engage. And we're screaming like, he's right fucking there. Um, you know, and I'm like trying to pass in this ammo can and just, I don't know whatever happened. He couldn't, he didn't engage us. He couldn't, something happened. But we got back to base finally, um, and no one was hurt. It was insane. Wow. It was like a Christmas miracle, truly, because, you know, we're ex-felling on Christmas Day. It was intense. Dude, that's incredible, man. Um, did you reflect on that at all afterwards, or or were you guys just so busy you just kept going? Uh, I mean, we, you know, you have, like, an AAR. You go sit down, and you talk through, and it's like, all right, you know, the no comms plan, we need to do better, right? Yeah. There, there's got to be, you know, you don't learn about these things till later on, but, and it's all through yeah, reasons like that, that you develop pace plans, you know, and we're, we're just in the grounds. So we don't get anything special. We got like a prick 117, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it was enough of a reflection that it was like, wow, that was crazy. Um, but, you know, then the next week, cat team went out and we lost five guys. You know, so it's like, there's it just this weird toss up of how things were going to play out. Uh, what does CAT stand for? Is it com- combined, combined arms? Team? Combined arm, combined anti armor team. So the, okay. the idea was, uh, you know, the, they had tow missiles that could go yeah. take out tanks, things like you. that. Um, <clears throat> did you get a sense for your guys' success uh, offensively or, I guess, reactionary? But did you feel like you guys got some of them on the way? on the way out or was oh yeah for sure oh no i mean we knew um based on intel reports that there were probably about 200 foreign fighters in just that one ambush uh and it was like eight blocks by eight blocks they they had us i mean did you kill any of them oh for sure uh i want to say that some of the reports had somewhere around 30 eka wow and they didn't get any of you guys no none but then so a few days later, or the next week, you guys lost five guys. Were you in on that? Not on that one. Yeah, not on that patrol. How did that impact you personally? Did you know any heavily? Guys? Oh yeah, one of them. One of them had been my roommate in the barracks before deployment. What can you say? What happened? Like how? How did it happen? Just another complex ambush. Um, I remember the Humvee had ultimately burned down, so you know all that was left was a skeleton of it. Um, were there guys in it yeah all five all five so was it like a got hit with an id or an rpg uh, i know it, it was an rpg and it just disabled it and then it was yeah i think over. there were a lot of secondaries from the mark 18 ammo in there man that's rough shit it is just no no two way i mean war is just rough either way i mean it, it, yeah um one thing that we did and i i didn't really appreciate it fully at the time we held memorial services then yeah like in country the day or 
a day after, depending on time frame. But um, it was real and it was raw, you know, like yeah. we, we lost family, you know, yeah. like these are people that we shared, you know, everything, hopes and dreams with, you know, talking about family and girlfriends and wives, all these things, you know. Yeah. How, how many uh, of you were there in that on that base? Uh, so it was a company, you know, company plus. So uh, infantry company. I don't know, what was it, like 130-ish. Yeah. Uh, plus we had the, the force recon element. We had a sniper platoon, uh, a full uh, complement of AAVs. Um, we would have tanks every now and then come in. So probably close to 200. Oh, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at what point was that where you guys lost five guys uh, in the deployment? How, how far along were you there? Oh, uh, we lost way more than that. Uh, ultimately, like throughout the entire deployment, um, I think the the first loss of life probably happened within the first couple of months. The um, were there any operations that you were on where you guys lost guys? Yeah. Can you? Uh, would you talk about one of those? Yeah. Um, there was one day we were. Uh, we're doing a day patrol and uh after this event we stopped doing those day patrols um it just it created too much chaos with civilians in the mix and uh it just prevented us from being able to truly use all the lethality necessary to overcome the enemy but on this particular day um we were doing a, a patrol with the intention to receive contact and then react to it. Um, we were driving up on the north side of the, the market street on the opposite side of a canal. And it was uh, a dirt road. And we just kept hitting IED after IED. My, my AV, we hit one IED and lost our tracks. So we were immobilized. Um, we pushed out, we were with, we were with the recon element at that point. We pushed them out to take over the nearest building and get overwatch set up. And we got out of the AV and we were set up in, in fighting positions. Uh, you know, we quickly dug skirmish holes and we were just waiting for a more complex ambush to occur and, uh, nothing happened, you know, so we, did what you know did what we were uh trained to do within our sops we called for uh support qrf to come out so we could tow the aav back and um there was a, a humvee of uh the qrf squad and they rolled up coming down this dirt road towards us uh from the base and and i don't know the size of this ied that they hit but it was it was highly destructive. Uh, the Humvee was a uh, open open bed Humvee, so you know everyone's just sitting on the benches. There's squad of Marines in the back. Um, <laughs> it was just horrendous, like throwing bodies into the air. And you could, I mean, when it exploded, it was probably a good 50 meters from us. And I could already see body parts 
not attached to my friends anymore. And, and we knew we had massive loss of life. Um, so we immediately called dust off. We put in, uh, you know, for larger QRF to come. And at this point, you know, in the war, there were no minesweepers. We didn't have any of that kind of equipment or, or any of those SOPs established even, you know, fives and 25s didn't exist yet. Um, and so we had to bring them in through the city <laughs> to come around on the, the west side or the east side of us to avoid, you know, another IED coming on that path. And, uh, and then they hit the ambush and then that hit us. So, you know, it triggered it. Um, and then we just started taking small arms fire and a couple of the guys, you know, the way that we had positioned ourselves, we were on the opposite side of this dirt road in our skirmish holes. So we could see over, over the road, essentially into the city. And we could see guys from these rooftops engaging, you know, machine guns, AKs, RPGs. And, uh, and we just started, you know, engaging back and a couple of guys kept getting rounds, taking rounds for the most part, they were all, you know, flesh wounds, like in the shoulder or something. Um, you know, finally we got, uh, the, the QRF to us and we got the AV hitched up and we're getting out of there and the recon element went to break down and on their exfil. Uh, one of their guys got shot in the back of the head and, and I, that one was just horrible. Um, were you right there? Yeah. Yeah. Just watching that. And, and it was honestly the, the reaction of the rest of the team to that was what really hit me, you know, like they, they were just wrecked right then and there, you know, and, um, and I'll never forget that. The um, the IED explosion did it kill everybody in the vehicle? It did not. Um, there were the it, where it hit. Uh, it must have been uh, remote controlled because it, it didn't hit the front of the vehicle. It hit the rear where everyone was at. And um, fortunately, they had Kevlar blankets on the on the bottom of the vehicle and on the sides, and. Uh, that took a, a majority of the shrapnel, but we definitely, we lost, I think, three guys from that vehicle. And I'm assuming several other lost body parts. Oh, yeah, you know, arms, legs. Do you know if anybody from the vehicle was uninjured? Uh, I mean. I mean, relatively speaking. Relatively. Everyone, everyone had a purple heart from that. Yeah. Man. The... Uh, how, the the recon guys when you were right there and and one of their teammates was shot, uh, you said that it, it wrecked them immediately. Did was it to the point um, severity wise where combat ineffectiveness was? You could see that happening if we hadn't been ready to break down and get the hell out of there. Um, and by this point, you know we had air on station, so they're dropping gbus and we got you know cobras if we hadn't had that and we were still engaged in in some pretty serious combat they would have they would have been out of the fight for sure yeah and these are force recon guys oh yeah yeah do you know who who it was, in, in it was the, uh second force i mean um the guy that actually was 
uh, was killed, uh, what role did he play in their unit? Was he one of their senior guys or? Uh, he was a sergeant. I'm, I'm not sure, you know, how senior he yeah. would have been in that, in that team. Yeah. Yeah. That's brutal. Um, within the, the fighting force that you guys encountered while you were on that deployment, were you aware then or now of what the breakdown was of foreign fighters, uh, former Saddam loyalists, former Iraqi military? Do you know what, what that mix was like? Uh, for the most part, we were under the impression that everything was foreign fighters. Yeah. So probably more mo motivated, more reckless. Oh, yeah. More they, dedicated. Absolutely. Yeah. Harder um, to deal with. Absolutely. They had, I mean, they had uniforms like really they would come out in their adidas track seats and you know ball clavas yeah um you know we had a, a f enemy with a face yeah i wonder if adidas is aware <laughs> as a brand of how popular their shit is with terrorists right it's like the toyota hilux you yeah know? i mean yeah it'd, it'd be interesting to know if they have a any awareness of that or like what their take is for that matter i guess the a lot of mobsters wear it too. I wonder if I don't know what it is with track suits, Adidas track suits that attracts fucking <laughs> people. That uh, whatever. That's a whole other story. I know. I know. Um, sounds like a rough deployment. It was. Uh, when you reflect on your entire military career, was that deployment the the, the roughest? By far. By far. You know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of guys, um, a lot of combat veterans, both from Iraq and Afghanistan. Syria, uh, you name it. And uh, I find that a lot of the deployments that have that kind of somber heaviness to it uh, are often infantry guys. Like, you know, you get some some pretty no shit there we were crazy stories from, you know, special operations guys, tier one guys. Um, but when it's like extended uh, just fucking treachery for six months long of just getting kicked in the balls over and over and over. The infantry seems to take the cake in that department. For sure. Um, you know, and it's just, it's, it's brutal to think, especially given the fact that like th they usually have less equipment, less training, they're younger, less experience, um, and getting put into these scenarios. I mean, one could argue that that's a big contributing factor as to why it goes the way that it goes. But I also think that, you know, the, the infantry, both Army and Marines, get put into into environments and scenarios that I think oftentimes, I don't, I don't know if it's just, hey, that's the nature of the job and, and we need guys to do this and it's going to suck and it's tough and, and that's part of the gig or, or what. But, man, it, it just sure seems like infantry um, gets put through the fucking ringer a lot. Um, man, I mean, hearing your stories and, and again, kind of paralleling them to some of the others that I've heard from from other guys that, that served in similar units. It's just, uh, man, it seems like a rough fucking gig. Um, when you, I guess taking one step back, do you know about how many guys you guys lost on that deployment? I, I don't have a good I mean, a number for that. Yeah, I mean, 50? I don't think it was quite 50. I think it was probably around 30. Did you ever get injured? No. That's wild. I mean, IEDs, like the blast from that. But no, you know, like but legit. No. Yeah. And and even then, you know, like <laughs> nobody thought to think anything of that then. Yeah. Um, 
when you came home from that deployment, what, what was what was your mentality then? And was it that deployment where you were acting as a blocking force, the catalyst that made you want to go do recon shit? Or no, it, it wasn't. Um, I I loved being in the mud with the men. You know, I loved being infantry, and coming back from that deployment, uh, while there was a lot of hardship and a lot of adversity. And the, those of us that did come back, um, we knew that we were going right back out, you know. And so there was, there was little room to let it overcome us, and and we found strength in each other, and we knew that you know the mission carries on, and you got to find a way to be combat effective, um, and we just we just put ourselves back into the fight, uh, you know. We worked hard and we played hard. Yeah. As you guys know, I've been using mud water uh, personally for a while now. Um, it's a great alternative to coffee with four adaptogenic mushrooms with only a fraction of caffeine. Uh, as you get in a cup of coffee, you get energy without the jitters uh, or crash that you get with coffee. Each ingredient was added for a purpose, cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and hot chocolate-like flavor, lion's mane to support focus, cordyceps to help support physical performance, and chaga and raishi to support your immune system. I love how it tastes. Uh, I, I personally am a big fan of the lion's mane aspect as I get older and uh, mentally I'm all over the place with all the different things I have going on. I find that the, the, the focus and kind of brain power that I get from that is top notch and uh, crucial. Uh, it's Whole30 approved. It's 100% USDA uh, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Uh, and they do donate monthly to psychedelic research and treatments as they believe the country is in a mental health epidemic, which I think we can all agree, and see psychedelics as useful tools. So they, uh, they help out uh, immensely with donating to those programs. You can get 15% off and a free frother if you go to mudwater.com and use the code MICDROP, all one word, for 15% off. Again, that's mudwater.com, M-U-D-W-T-R.com. And use the code mic drop all one word for fifteen percent off. Do it. What were was there any part of you that wanted to get back and get back to hand them their ass and, and uh, keep hell yes yeah hell yes I uh, I would say that you know looking back on things now, <clears throat> um, probably not the best uh, decision, but they sent us right back to the same city in six months. Uh, it was a little bit longer. So we came back in March of 2005 and then we we're back out in February of 2006. So wow. just under a year. And, uh, you know, going back to that same city at the time, Operation Steel Curtain had just occurred. Um, so we were in the, you know, like during that time frame, we called it clear, clear hold build and we we're in the hold phase. Um, and so we had that that soccer field uh, got turned into a patrol base um, after the that clearing operation of Steel Curtain. We had that, and then on the south end of the city was a train station, an old abandoned train station. So we had a patrol base there. And initially, I was in still in second platoon, so I was at that train station, and we would just push out patrols every single day. Uh, you know, to try and just hold that space that we had taken. 
and I remember now I just had a lot of resentment, a lot of anger. I was a young dude, so I you know, had no way to channel that. Um, Did you find yourself trying to channel it on operations? I don't know. I, I let it loose, you know. In in what way? Uh, just the way I would I would treat the local populace. You know, we were so so jaded by how that previous deployment had went. We didn't trust anyone. Um, we still had quite a few uh, like individuals that would come into our patrols and detonate. Uh, you know, so we we would not let anyone near us on these patrols. You know, and that was. So, like, if a civilian started walking towards you, they're not going to make it very far. No, we and you know our our ROEs had kind of changed a little bit, so we weren't just straight engaging. We had to go through all these, all these procedures. You know, you're just like shout, shove, shoot, throw a, throw a flag at them, throw a pen or shoot a pen flare, warning shot, and then you could engage. Um, you know, and it was it was stressful as fuck. Yeah, from. When you left there, the, the deployment before, and when you got back almost a year later, was the the feeling and the and the vibe with the city um, was it way different? Did it seem like holy shit? I don't even recognize this place, or was it? It, it was. Um, it was just eerily quiet. There there was no enemy that had a face anymore. It was a faceless enemy, you know. So the the steel curtain kind of pushed them into the shadows. Yep. Yeah. Um, from your perspective in, in terms of fighting them, did that, I'm assuming, make it much harder to fight them? Absolutely. You know, there was, we had to rely a lot more on intelligence and, and those patrols, you know, we would uh, bring out our, our humaners, you know, and they were trying to build their source networks and get early warnings, indications and warnings for attacks and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, how did that deployment go overall comparatively? Like, was it pretty similar in terms of busy? You know, it wasn't. Um, I I still have the round that I kept in condition one for that whole deployment. Oh, wow. Yeah. You never fired around. I, I did not. Wow, no shit. I didn't. I was, right. you know, I was in a, a leadership position by this point. My men were yeah. you know, doing all the engaging. But it, it does stress that difference, you know. Yeah. It was a much more um, strategic and deliberate approach to how we did things. We had we had a lot more training by that point. You yeah. know, a lot of lessons learned and a lot of infantry units that had taken their experience and we had built out, you know, pretty good understanding of how to engage in that yeah. kind of environment. So it sounds like from a mission success standpoint, in terms of your ability to, to come home, uh, reach your objectives, things of that nature. It was a more effective and efficient deployment. Absolutely, yeah. it it gave me the closure I needed to be able to to walk away from that enlistment and do something different. Yeah, be like we we did what we needed to do and got it done. Yes. Yeah. Any operations stand out as uh, being super memorable from that entire deployment? Nothing, nothing from the standpoint that you would you'd imagine it was like dealing with all the other little things you know the the just intricacies of of deployed life yeah you know and and the hardship of dealing with that stress and the unknown when you look back on that deployment what's the first thing that that comes to mind it was 
it was a, a very uh, difficult deployment from a, the stance of not being able to know what to expect and and not having that same ability to just engage the enemy that we did before. Yeah. Um, how long was that one? Uh, another like six or seven yeah. months. You come home from that. At that point now, you pivot into a different different role, correct? Yes. And I went over to Quantico uh, as a combat instructor. How was that? It was incredible. Yeah. I got to see a different side of the Marine Corps. Um, I got to you know see the academia side, you know, and I was uh, a combat instructor for new lieutenants out of uh, OCS, and they were going into the basic school, and um, it was it was incredible because I was surrounded by some like incredible Marines. Um, Captain Sean Tosh was like one of them, you know, he was one of the instructors at the basic school there. I got to learn from all these people, um, and learn about Marine Corps doctrine. And, uh, at that point, I also got really heavy into martial arts. Uh, the martial arts center of excellence was right across the street from us. Is that Marine related or it's yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, the Marine Corps martial arts program and the Marine Corps martial arts program, McMap. Um, and, uh, and it was built off of the, the techniques and concepts, uh, coming out of Vietnam, like, uh, the, I think they called it line fighting was back then. Um, but it was, it was pretty awesome. I had, uh, the experience to be able to go through their instructor course. And so I became a martial arts instructor and then I went back through to become an instructor trainer. And then I started running instructor courses, teaching uh, other Marines how to be instructors. And it was extremely rewarding. How, how would you characterize the Marine martial arts program in terms of to um, reduce it to a civilian counterpart? It, it, what would you say it's a mix of or most like? It, so it's a weapons-based system. <laughs> the idea is one mind, any weapon. Um, you know, we, we learned... Suction cup dildo? Everything, anything. anything. All right. Anything you can kill a man with. <laughs> Suction cup dildo for sure. <laughs> Straight what down the, the throat. Yeah. <laughs> Choke yourself. Yeah. Uh, you stole my line. I did. Uh, well, it has to be said at least once, so I'm glad we checked that box. Um, the, uh, I mean, are there, ground, I mean, is there a lot of ground fighting? Not a lot? Of, is it Krav Maga? Like, how, how would you um, describe it? There's a heavy focus on judo. Uh, standing is obviously the best place you want to be you want your enemy on the ground um so any ground fighting that we did was with a purpose to get back to your feet um you know it was it's one of those things where unfortunately the way that the the program was built and the the belt level that you would work through um in the early belts all you focus on is ground fighting and unfortunately marines get drawn into this idea of like oh, well, the better I am at ground fighting, the better I am as a martial artist. Uh, when that's not the reality, right? Like the last place you want to be is on the ground, um, you know, in a, in a real fight, like combat, life and death. Uh, obviously, sport is very different, um, you know, and so it was there was a lot of emphasis on ensuring that Marines understood that. Uh, and, you know, we did everything like live blade fighting, uh, I ended up when I, I went down to Marsoc and then, uh, right after ITC had graduated our pipeline, I went back up to Quantico for my second degree, 
or my second degree black belt. And I went through that course. Um, and I ended up getting stabbed in the face with a bayonet. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Is that why the, the scars on your that your beard are covering? Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it it broke my jaw, here, nose, uh, orbital wow. socket. Like, damn. It crushed me. Um, I had my jaw wired closed for like a month and a half. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I did too, but I was five. I fell off a bike and broke my jaw when I was a kid. But man, that's rough shit. So you didn't get your second degree black belt on that? I did. <laughs> no, I'm just I, fortunately, it was the, yeah. uh, the last. The last event that I had to do. Damn. So it's always the last fucking thing. Yeah. Um, overall, your time there sound, sounds like you enjoyed it. Uh, it was rewarding. Um, Extremely. Kind of gave you a different perspective of what the Marine Corps is and and, and what have you. Um, anything else that's that's worth mentioning about your time there? Yeah. Um, I got put into into a lot of leadership roles. Uh, you know, and I, it was a great opportunity and kind of that bloom where you're planted kind of concept and um one of my really good friends there that i he just became like my brother uh his name is jay hoskins he came out of uh one of the infantry units that had been in phantom fury uh so he and i had a lot of shared experiences you know we lost a lot of friends together and um and so it was a, a, just a good bonding moment to have that kind of a brother and and the strength in that and the reason i bring him up is he ultimately got killed in afghanistan mm-hmm. and um and that's just you know one of those things like even in those types of environments where you're in dwell you know those those bonds that you build like they get torn away from you yeah. you know and, and that the military life is uh it's challenging yeah it absolutely is um how long were you there Two years. I was supposed to be there three, but, um, you know, I got bored. I wanted to get back out. And then that was uh, around the time Marsoc had been formed. So I got there in 2006 when Marsoc was formed with that one. And then, and I didn't, I didn't know anything of it at the time. Uh, But in 2008, early 2008, they sent up a a recruiter uh, to to combat instructor company where I was. And I, I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. I just, I went with it. Yeah. And obviously they let you go. Was there any pushback? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I had to fight to get my, my way down there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I'd, I'd been at Quantico long enough and I'd learned a lot of, a lot of the intricacies about the Marine Corps and how manpower and reserves works. Uh, and so I, I just took myself down to my monitor's office and I was like, no, I need orders down to Lejeune. Yeah. Like I'm going there. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I went behind my leadership's back to do it, yeah. but I had, I had, you know, that was, you did what you had path. to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you get down there. What was that like? It was incredible. I got assigned. So in the early days, uh, they were hurting so bad to, to get people in that were qualified. And, uh, at the time, we were only taking infantry uh, MOSs, so the the pool to pull from was it was you know challenging um, and competitive. Uh, and at the time, I was able to PCS to Marsoc and await my posi- or my you know spot at selection. Um, so I was there for maybe a month before I went off to selection and my entire job was just to prepare for that. Yeah. 
and I was around, it was in a platoon of, you know, same, same types of Marines. Yeah. All combat, you know, vets. Yeah. Um, was the selection, did it stack up how you thought it would? Was it? Oh, it was way harder than I thought it was. <laughs> That's a recurring theme here. <laughs> totally kicked me in the nuts. Wasn't expecting it. Uh, how long was it? Uh, I think it was a little over three weeks. Okay. Um, you made it first time? Yes. Yeah. How many guys started and versus how many finished in your group? Uh, we had somewhere around 100, and we graduated in like 32, 38, oh. somewhere around there. Where did most of the 70%-ish quit or just not make it? Uh, we lost a good portion of them in the, the first few days. So the way that we did it was out of uh, Courthouse Bay, um, Camp Lejeune. We did kind of like your initial screenings. You know, you do a PFT and some psyche valves, stuff like that. And you'd be surprised that we did people out. Yeah. Um, then we did the pool. I wouldn't be that surprised, actually. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> like, yeah. it happens. But uh, one of the, the really huge uh, differentiators was the water. Yeah. And, and they <clears throat> threw us in, you know, 30-minute tread with full camis. Guys were just dropping, yeah, just quitting. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, so you make it through that, and then now that you're selected, what happened after that? So at that point, I go back to, uh, at the time, was Marine Special Operations Advisor Group, which ultimately became 3rd MSOP. Uh, so I went back to there. I was assigned to a team, and I started doing OJT, uh, waiting for my seat to go to ITC. So I, I think I got back in February of 2009, ITC is what? Uh, individual training course. Okay. So it's our, our qualifying pipeline. Okay. Um, what makes you a Raider? How long is that? Ours was nine months. Yeah. We were the second class, though. Um, the first class technically wasn't even considered ITC until I think there may be a month in, and then it got the so-called designation. Mm. Um, and, and there's... Uh, they they graduated and then had to come back oh, wow. for an additional like amphib course. Yeah. Um, and so and theirs I think was eight months, and then you know they're still they're still just trying to figure stuff out for ours. Yeah. And we're you know I was just talking to one of my buddies the other day. Uh, he's still in, and uh, he told me that he di he did a stint at the schoolhouse and he was talking to some of the uh, cadre from there, and and they straight up told him like. We didn't even know what we were doing back then. We didn't know what the limits were, and we just pushed you guys until you broke. Yeah. And then we're like, all right, that's it. You know, like, <laughs> all right. That's the standard. That's the standard. Yeah. Wow. And I love it. Um, and so with that nine-month pipeline, is it broken down just into, like, different tactical blocks of training? And, what, like, what are they, generally speaking? Yeah. Uh, so I want to say the first portion was, like, small unit tactics, just brilliance in the basics, you know, um, infantry tactics and, and building on that. Uh, that had a culminating exercise called Raider Spirit. And this is, this is like that, that thing where they're like, how far can we push them until yeah. they break? Uh, I don't know if you've ever done any training out in like North Carolina, Camp Lejeune area. Uh, in North Carolina, yes, but it was a, a secret squirrel intel base where it was, okay. wasn't physical. So. Yeah. Um, where we were is just like all swamps. Yeah. And so everyone got trench foot, you know, we're out there for like, I want to say it was three weeks, just living miserable, 
miserable. Yeah. Hundred pound rocks just moving like <laughs> seventy five mile movements at a time, just yeah. crushing you. Wow. <laughs> and then uh so infantry small unit tactics. Uh yep. So that developed into uh I think from there we did A and B. Uh so one one half of the class went through SEER. Uh, and we did full spectrum. Uh, Marsoc had its own, which was actually really well done. I was impressed. Um, and then the other half did uh, flat range. Uh, and then from there, we moved as a class into CQB. We did, uh, I want to say, month-long package for CQB. And then we had a qual, um, standard like SOCOM qual. Uh, we lost a lot of guys at that point. And then from there, we moved into more of the irregular warfare and special operations tasks. Um, obviously, your, your typical like foreign internal defense, DASR, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Was that the end of it? Uh, we had a culminating exercise called Derna Bridge, kind of like uh, ODAs do Robin Sage. Um, and that was, I want to say, three weeks long, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And that, and then that you graduate and you make it. Yeah, uh, somewhere in there we did a amphib package too. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So a nine month pipeline, you kind of cover cover everything basically that you're going to be doing, and then from there, now you're a raider. Yes. And from there, where did you go? Uh, so I went back to, I think it was the same team. Um, you know, we're in influx, right? So our, you know, we had became MSOAG, the third MSOB. Well, it was the third and fourth, and then it consolidated fourth back into third. So our team designation changed, but it was the same people. Yeah. Uh, so I get back to that team, and at the time, we began our individual pipeline, you know, workup. So uh, I was like the 18 Fox equivalent for our team. So I just started going through all my Intel schools, uh, getting trained up. Uh, some other, you know, like basic stuff like jump school, um, things like that. But then we started our team training pipeline workup for, uh, I think at the time we were, we were slotted for the mission to go, uh, advise the Kenyan Rangers for their incursion into Somalia. Um, and then ultimately we ended up losing that, that mission set and we went over, went on over to Senegal. Mm-hmm. We're training the Senegalese special forces for combat, uh, or counter narcotics, uh, deployment that they were going to go on yeah wow taking one step back when you graduated did they make a big deal out of it i mean did it seem like a big deal obviously it is but i mean was it like holy shit we made it it was uh we started with 120 and graduated 38 yeah and um it was it was awesome at this point uh marsoc had really started flourishing and there was a lot of tradition being put into yeah. what we were doing is there an uh, at that point once you graduate that an insignia designation that you're now awarded that that if you're walking around base everybody's like holy shit that's a marsoc guy not at this time yet we didn't even have an mos oh wow. so at this point we graduated and so was, you couldn't even brag about it i mean without saying anything yeah you couldn't right. walk around it's like you know with a trident on your chest you know like correct everybody knows what that is you know but, yeah the 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 biggest differentiator at the time was like your your dual coil is what we call this your scuba and jump wings yeah gold wings um and so you know that was a the thing everyone's like all right i gotta get my dual coil now you know? yeah 
eventually we ended up getting an MOS and then uh, down the road, the Raider device. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So you go through the individual pipeline, fast forwarding to uh, preparing for advising the Kenyan special forces. Uh, did you go do that? We, we did not. Um, we did the workup for it, all the intelligence development, you know, preparations, intel prep of the battle space. Um, and then, you know, it, it came down to, I think, uh, ODA got that JPAT. Yeah. Uh, so we go over to Senegal. Uh, we do that workup and then deployment um, with the understanding that we would, I think at the time, we were going to go from there to, like, Botswana or something, somewhere else in Africa, you know. And then that all gets cut short, and we get brought back because we're going to get chopped to, at the time we're on the west or east coast, we're going to get chopped to the west coast to uh, first MSOB to go attach with them, Alpha Company, to go to Afghanistan. So we get brought back early. Um, you know, all those other missions get cut short. And we go straight into our, our individual training again do that for a few months and then immediately deploy to California for the rest of our workup. So, you know, we're there for, I don't know, maybe six months leading up to our deployment for Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, you were in Senegal yes, for a little while. What was that? What's Senegal like? It was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and what, what's the, the culture and the people like there? Yeah. They're a very active, uh, people. They, they all, embrace physical fitness um and it, and it's a part of their culture you know like driving around to car the capital uh kind of like some of those main main avenues uh throughout the city they've got running tracks uh you know like old stations for calisthenics pull-ups all that kind of stuff um do the, do the people seem fit oh yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. uh you know despite a lot of poverty and you know just what you're going to deal with in Africa, um, they seem to be, you know, doing well and mentally thriving in that environment. Were they receptive to you guys as Americans? Like how did they? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the populace and, and their military, very welcoming. Yeah. Um, That's great cool. people. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So going back to, you go to Afghan or, uh, finish your work up to go to Afghanistan. You end up going to Afghanistan. And this is what, 2009, 2010? No. So this by this point, it's uh, 2012. Okay. Um, was the, the group that you went with, uh, were they, was it all MARSOC guys? Was it a contingent of different? Yeah. So our, our core team was uh, MARSOC. So we had 14 uh, individuals and, you know, our core team broken down in two elements and a headquarters element. Um, we had SARCs you know, in each of our elements. So, uh, they were basically, you know, Raider, um, we brought them into the fold They went through their own selection process and, and pipeline too. Um, and then through the workup, you know, they're trained to the same standards. Yeah. Um, so that core team was then reinforced with enablers, uh, and at the, the point that we were, or the place that we were going to is going to be in Kajaki district of Helmand province. And, uh, we're going forward to do district stability operations, which up to that point, everyone had been doing village stability operations. And, uh, so our, our, uh, team was pretty robust. We had, I think total of 23, 
Um, you know, we have everything from uh, dog handlers, uh, comms. Uh, we had maintainers, you know, for our RG31s, um, EOD techs, humaners, you know, pretty Intel, uh, second, all, all the compliments. So a pretty significant contrast from the last deployment you were on. Absolutely. In every way. I every mean, way. gear training, oh, yeah. caliber of guy, not to take anything away from infantry guys. but No, it's it's just way more time spent doing those basic tasks, yeah. that, those infantry tasks. And you know? way more support. Way more support, yeah. all the funding, yeah. you know, it was, it was different. And uh, how, how was that deployment? Was it busy? Um. At first, yes, but then you know, towards the tail end of that deployment, we knew that the team coming to replace us would just be tearing everything down uh, for a drawdown. You know, so it was it was kind of a kick in the gut. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we had to kind of change our approach, and uh, you know, our leadership was a bunch of seasoned dudes, and we had a lot of uh, kind of junior guys that hadn't seen combat. Um, by this point, Marsoc had opened it up to any MOS. Like if you meet the standard, you're, you're an operator. Um, and so a lot of those guys just didn't have that experience and they're hungry, you know, and they wanted to go out and get in gunfights and, and it was just a different approach that we had, you know, our, our, myself, the other element leader, our ops chief and team chief, uh, we just didn't want to lose anybody again, you know? And we didn't see the for no reason for no reason. Yeah. 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 No, I, I get that. I mean, to me, it's, it's such a kind of a, a double edged sword with young, hungry guys that want to get some. Um, and I think most of them do until they do. And then they realize, you know, not don't shy away from it, but don't do it unnecessarily. You yeah. know, like, um, it, it's, it's so weird. Like the younger guys are the, the more, gung-ho they are about doing really stupid shit you know and it's like there's a difference between being brave and courageous and having valor versus um you know just being fucking stupid about what you're about what you're doing to say you did something exactly um so early on when it when it was still busy were you guys going out and and getting into gunfights or was it um not not quite um so before we set in to Gajaki, we're down in uh, uh, Lower Helmand at Leatherneck um, with Camp or our like sister team at Camp Bastion, and and that team <clears throat> they had the mission of uh, working with the Seventh Kandak, uh, the Afghan commandos, and they would go out and clear white space for teams that were doing village and district stability operations. Um, and so, you know, we get there, I want to say it was November, 2012, uh, and our plan was to set in in December, um, in a Kajaki, but for whatever reason, we ended up getting, uh, pushed to the right. I think it was our, uh, our logistics train was just so messed up. Um, there was, uh, like it, it took a lot of effort to get anything on trucks the whole way up there. Mm -hmm. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, just roadside IEDs. And, and so to plan for that and the, I think it was the, we wanted to wait till the, the ground froze a little more, Yeah, you know, to make that movement, uh, safer. Yeah. Um, you know, and so we instead 
stuck down there at Camp Bastion and, and playing a dagger op with the seventh or uh, with our complement or our sister team in the seventh can deck. Um, what and is I'm, a dagger op? So dagger op is that that insert okay. to create that white space. Okay. Um, basically, you know, you're going in there to banging out with the yeah. enemy. Um, and so I was uh, because I was one of the element leaders and I had some uh, secondary tasks to build out, you know, source networks. Um, I was, you know, afforded the opportunity to go on the, on that operation. And so, uh, it was pretty, it was pretty, uh, hair raising. Um, you know, we flew in on, uh, black Chinooks with 160th and going into there, you know, we were going to set off on the Y 300, uh, 300 meters from our, our actual compound that we were going to go take over and, uh, and push out our, our patrolling ops from there to create that white space. And uh, we get about halfway uh, to the drop point, and um, our JTAC, you know, is on comms with the. We had a half skid out in front, you know, just checking the area and looking for any activity. Um, and you know, we're all on comms with the birds, so we can hear everything going on. Our JTAC starts just dropping bombs because there's there's dudes literally out running setting up positions um i think we had you know over a dozen eka before we even get down on the ground wow. so you know 160th makes a call halfway you know in flight they're like no we're putting you on the x so we're like getting ready you know trying to relay that to these commandos who are, you know they're just ready to just fall in line and and get to get, get in the fight you know and uh so we ramp goes down and there's just gunfire going off, you know, birds from the sky raining down hell. We got C one thirties on station. Welcome to Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was crazy. Yeah. Uh and we were there for, you know, three days just duking it out. Um had, we were launching mortars from the courtyard. Guys were coming in on the tree line hundred meters from our position. Were you getting some at that point? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. It was crazy. So, so you, don't, you don't have that bullet from, uh, no. <laughs> from yeah. yeah. And, uh, that was the first time I got to actually shoot mortars in combat. Oh, really? Is, oh yeah. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. You know. Uh, was it, did it take you some time to get that dialed in or were you pretty effective with it? Right no, now? we were very effective. Uh, this team, you know, they had, there was, was their, I want to say their second or third rotation doing this oh okay um and so they had this they had it all figured out we had the mortar plate the second you know we get into the compound we're setting that up because that is our lifeline yeah. you know on the ground as soon as air is gone that's it yeah um so we get you know the mortar plate set in and we got uh all the azimuth spray painted on the inside of the courtyard all the way around oh nice so you know we got fo on on the roof and he's just calling out azimuth distance and direction and, you know, and, and this, we're hand firing this. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're just aiming at the numbers on the wall. <laughs> like, all right, that's roughly 180. All right, we got to go here. Yeah. Hey, about this inclination, boom, dropping. Yeah. And just slaying And people. just correcting fire, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. What, what's the range on the ones you guys are shooting? Uh, they're 60s, so I don't, I don't know what. I should all know part. these things, right? You know, it's all. You should know it better than me, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> we, we never fired mortars uh, other than, like, one a couple times in training just fucking with it you know but yeah i think you could get a thousand meters on those yeah um so, all right so busy at first then things settled down they did um so after that operation we came back uh and we pushed you know our logistics train all the way out to kajaki took one ied on the way uh you know destroyed one of our 
uh, Connex boxes, some gear in there, you know. Yeah. Um, but nothing too, nothing too crazy. Uh, we get set in, and you know, we're just taking pop shots from Dishka's like mountaintops away. I mean, at this point, the fighting season's over. It's winter time. It's pretty, pretty slow, and not not much going on. Yeah, yeah. For the most part, we're uh, you know, we also look a lot different than the the other Marines in the AO. Yeah. You know, they're all wearing their desert digis and we got woodlands and Gucci Beards gear. And fucking, yeah. yeah. They're like, yeah, these are the guys you don't fuck with. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's amazing that, you know, it reminds me of really any profession or industry in that the better you get, like the less you do, you know, and, and it's kind of a strange irony in the military. Like we were talking about, like the infantry guys, they're in the thick of it all goddamn day, every day. The, the more specialized you get, not that, you know, I mean, uh, there's been plenty of, even all the way up to tier one guys that come on here that have, you know, super busy, crazy stories. But even the, the missions and operations that they're going on, usually they're, they're just so much more efficient and better trained with, you know, way better resources that it's so much more strategic and, and calculated. And, and, uh, and a lot of times they're, they're not as busy because they're so good at what they do. And kind of that same thing, like, we're not even going to fuck with these guys. We're going to live to fight another day and go fight these guys instead or whatever. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and we had, we just had so much better, uh, Intel support, you know, and, and it was real time, yeah. right? Like we're collecting signals and intelligence that yeah. we're getting that instant feedback on. You wish the entire U S military had, you know, every unit had that kind of level of support. You know, it'd be yeah, like uh, I don't know. Let's do away with F thirty fives. The yeah. you know that the supply chains used. are destroyed, right? Yeah. Like, come yeah. on. Yeah, that they don't have the parts to fix. Um, did you any good dog stories from that deployment? Yeah, so we had two two dogs, um, Wilbur and Willie. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a couple of fucking rednecks. I know, right? That's awesome. Uh, actually, our dog handler uh, for Willie was straight redneck. Yeah. He was, you know, Virginia boy. Yeah, I, I love him. Wilbur and Willie. What yeah. uh, did they get? Some? Uh, yeah, they. Uh, Wilbur, he was better, better trained dog. He was. Um, uh, I want to say he was a German Shepherd. Willie was a IDD dog. Oh, okay. Uh, Floppier dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah lab, no, lab. Yeah. He was our camp pet. You yeah. Know? Like, he was, he was great, but um, he was also a lot older. Yeah. Uh, one of the dudes on the team, uh, the other element leader, ended up adopting him oh, after, cool. uh, you know, we got back from that deployment because the Marine Corps did away with the entire yeah. IDD yeah. Uh, program. Um, so it was, it was a cool little uh, – and, and actually – uh, the other dog handler got to adopt Wilbur. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, but did Wilbur get to fuck anybody up? Uh, you know, I don't think he ever got any yeah. attacks. Well, he's not where you were there. Yeah. Not any good IED finds or anything? Yeah. There yeah. were, there were a couple good caches yeah. that we found. Uh, what did it, what were they? Just like it, RPGs and fucking. No, no, no. This is all IEDs. Oh, uh, gotcha. Like, all uh, homemade explosives. Yeah. yeah. You know, in the jugs. Yeah. That's uh, that's good stuff, no doubt about it. Um, For sure. How many deployments did you do with Marsoc? Uh, technically three. Okay. So, so, so Jordan, Senegal, and Afghanistan. So the um, your time within Marsoc uh, in in that Afghanistan deployment that was the last of it. It was. Yeah. Um, from there, what what did what transpired when you when you came home and kind of decided, okay, that's it. Um. So during that deployment, uh, 
we dealt with a little bit of inner team dynamics and some adversity. Um, you know, we had a an officer that saw things a little different than enlisted. In terms of uh, what, like he hamstrung you or? Yeah, a little bit. He he wanted to get his combat action ribbon. Um, you know, this is my interpretation. Obviously, not trying to trash talk him or anything, but uh, he he would not let the ground force commander concept go to anyone else. He had to be the guy on the ground doing it. Um, and, and it was, you know, really difficult to deal with and ended up our team chief and, and he did not get along great and, uh, just added a lot of, uh, unneeded, you know, complications to our deployment and coming back from that, um, there was, you know, just further, further nonsense. There's like a command investigation against us based off of false allegations that he made. Um, you know, and did just, that go anywhere? No, no. of course not. No. Cause they're false allegations. Yeah. Um, but it was just the, the, uh, the, the dealing of that, that put this bad taste in my mouth where, you know, it, it allowed me the opportunity to say, okay, you know, I can hang my hat up here and, and, yeah. and be happy with what I've done. Um, there were also some other things in my life just pulling me to, to leave. Uh, you know, that, that workup leading to that deployment, um, our team had a 90% divorce rate uh, just because we're gone so much. Were you married at the time? I was. Um, my marriage was not great. And I, you know, had this idea. So I was married to someone in the Army. And, it's um, not your wife now, I take it. Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, she had been on a deployment in Germany and, you know, started having an affair and, uh, you know, dealing with that adversity is trying to fix things. Um, you know, we had a, we, what I thought was my son had a, you know, child oh, wow. together. Uh, Turns out he's not your son. Huh? Correct. Wow. Um, found that out, you know, going through the divorce. Through How old was he when you found that out? Uh, six years old. Oh, shit. Yeah. Man. Uh, how, I mean, how did you, uh, how did you deal with that? Um, it was really hard. I, at this point I, I left the Marine Corps because she had got an opportunity to go to uh, flight school, become a warrant officer. Um, and I thought, you know, in my head, like, okay, you know, she's given up so much for me to be on all these deployments and be gone. You know, like I, I thought I could look past, you know, the, what happened while she was deployed and kind of forgive if, you know, maybe I sacrificed a little for her. So I got out and, uh, you know, it was just doing the dad thing, trying to let her go to flight school. And then it happened again. And it was just same like, guy now different, oh, wow. you know, and I was like, all right, this, this is a pattern. Yeah. Um, uh, I just couldn't be a part of that anymore. I'd given up my whole career, you know, and then it was just taken from me. And then that's when the, the truth came out of, you know, about him not being my son. Did, um, did you have a sense that she knew that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, did you suspect or were, were you caught totally off guard? You know, I was a super naive young Marine coming back from a deployment. Um, it was the, the really rough deployment, yeah. you know, and uh, we had just started dating and then, 
she ended up getting pregnant and I thought it was me, you know, so I did the honorable thing and I married her, um, you know, and then just to have all that stripped away from me and find out it was all a lie amidst me dealing with my own transition and loss of identity, um, you know, and it literally felt like my whole world was shattered, Yeah, you know, and I, I was severely depressed, uh, just in a relief freaking bad space yeah you know and and the only thing i had going for me at the time um i got out in july of 2014 and i thought i was going to go back to school finish my degree in kinesiology uh and open up a gym i was really into crossfit so i was a, a crossfit gym and that was that was the only thing that got me through you know having that community um being physically active and and engaging my mind and body that way you, you opened the gym? No, I oh, didn't. Okay. I was I was going to school oh, so I, I could you. get a degree oh, uh, to do that. And I was working as a, a coach at the oh, gym. Um, and, you know, and then at that point, uh, after my whole kind of world fell apart, uh, I, I was looking at what was going on in Iraq and Syria with ISIS. And, and that was kind of a, a new call to arms for me. You know, I was like, all right, look, I lost my identity. Um, as a Marine, as a Raider, I don't have that anymore. You know, in my head, I'm thinking this, right? You know, um, I don't have those brothers with me, but I'm not done serving. And so I, I got into contracting, um, you know, and I was supporting JSOC and, and all of those efforts uh, as an Intel analyst at first. And then uh, went over to um, a different unit where I was deployed as a targeting officer, you know, supporting the task force downrange. And it gave me a new purpose. Yeah. Uh, if we if we could take a quick step back, um, when you found out that your son was not yours, obviously that's catastrophic and, and devastating. As a six year old, thinking he's, he's your son, and now you realize he's not. Uh, I mean, how? Do, I can't even imagine. Like, did he, was he told that at that time? No. Um, I mean, like, like how, how did the like how, how did that unfold, and and how do you? deal with him like how like do you still interact with him do you like how, how did that whole process kind of shake out yeah like once you found out uh, so once i found out it was december 2014 and um you know i got that that test back and was that your idea yeah okay because you started to think like maybe yeah, yeah you know i'm start starting to backtrack everything and i'm like okay there's, there's a clear pattern there's a certain type of person um you know and so i, I questioned it and i was like i, I want to know the truth uh and when i found out i confronted her about it and she denied it you know of course and uh and then at the time you know she was down in alabama and i'm up in virginia living with him and, and I told her immediately I wanted a divorce. Uh, and, you know, that was kind of the, the route we were going to go. Um, I was going to try to make things work, you know, with her and him to stay in his life. But she sabotaged that, her and her mother. Um, and they started feeding him lies. And, and then basically told me I was never allowed to talk to him again. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was a really hard thing for me to walk away from. But I, I just knew if I tried to, to stay in his life, it wouldn't, it would not have worked out well for me. Yeah. Uh, they were just, they weren't in the right, 
mind frame to to allow that to be productive yeah. and and knowing that you know like <clears throat> i did my best with him and raised him for the you know the six years that i did have so i yeah. i think i created a good baseline for him you know and hopefully you know when he turns 18 if he wants to come and get the truth i'm here but yeah. have you have you not heard from him since no he, so he's what like 16 now or probably yeah, yeah. wow Man, that's, I'm sorry to hear that, man. That's fucking, I can't even imagine. I really can't imagine. That's, that's <laughs> tough. This is uh, actually the first time I'm really talking about it, too. It's really? crazy. Yeah. I didn't even. Well, it's the couch, really. You it know, is. I've got a box of Kleenex, baby wipes <laughs> over here, maybe, just in case. Uh, man, that's fucking, that's heavy. Um, all right, so you, going back to, you kind of repurpose your life and, and get on the on the path, so to speak. Um like as as that profession progressed uh, and you you build skills whatever at what point did you decide to start your own company during covid yeah yeah um or i guess so what happened between when when we left off before we took a couple steps back and yep. when you started your own business did you just continue to build skill sets and experience in in that sector oh absolutely um yeah i was i was surrounded by the best of the best you know uh and it pushed me hard, you know, and I grew as um, someone, you know, with an analytical mindset, naturally, I, th I think uh, I was able to really grow that and and evolve as a person, uh, look at things differently. Coming from the ground, having that, that ground operator experience gave me a different perspective that other intel analysts and targeters just didn't have, mm -hmm. right? You know, they're, they're all school trained, you know, writing desks, air conditioned environments their whole life, right? Yeah. Their whole career, you know, um, they'd never seen that, that actual contact on the ground. Um, so going in with that, I, I think I was able to draw on that experience. Uh, and, you know, just, I don't know, something about the Marine Corps and it's NCO, you know, NCO Corps and how, uh, leadership is pushed down to such a low level that allowed me to thrive and and so you know early on i was put into leadership positions i was leading you know a team of 12 varying disciplines of intel analysts um and you know we're going after our nation's top targets in isis uh and then you know that that opportunity and that exposure got me hungry again to like go downrange because this was all working from the rear can you say who you were working for when you were doing it? Yeah, so we were in a troop of the uh, JIB, which is the JSOC Intelligence Brigade. Um, this as you're still on active duty, or no? The, this is as a contractor. So I mean, that's as a kind con, of like what contracting company? Uh, so the the company that had that contract uh, was a subcontractor to the Prime. It was Preeding was the the name of that company, um, and. And that troop, uh, their assigned task was uh, developing advanced analytics and targeting methodologies. So we looked at, uh, you know, two ridgelines away type targets and, and worked on advanced targeting methodologies to help the task forces downrange identify and find those targets, you know, find, fix, finish. Yeah. Um, and just work that whole cycle. Okay. Uh, we we're doing a lot of like big data type of stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, from there, I'd, like I said, I, could, I got hungry again. I wanted to deploy. Um, so I transitioned to uh, JIDO, 
which is the now DITRA, um, but at the time they had a, a special operations branch that was solely uh, built to deploy targeting officers in support of the you know national tiers uh, or the you know uh, tier one assets, um, and so I had that opportunity and and deployed downrange to Iraq. Can you talk about that? Um, yeah, in, in sort of yeah, loose tongue, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously. Uh, just about everything I did over there was classified, but yeah. for the most part. Um, so what did you do? Yeah. Uh, so I, my my job was to manage all of the intelligence operations in support of developing targets for strike or uh, a hard hit for okay. boots on the ground rates. I know we've got to be careful and cautious about how, how we talk about it, but as you're overseas, is, is it kind of, if, if I'm painting kind of a visual picture, the opening scene of Black Hawk Down, the guy on the mountain bike? No. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's I not, not I quite that cool. That cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I felt like I was, that cool. <laughs> but no, it was uh jock operations, okay. you know, so we're in the jock. So okay. But you're uh, over there doing yeah, it. Yeah. I gotcha. With embedded with them. Yeah. Right? But as a civilian. Yes. Yeah. And, okay. and JSOC's pretty unique in how it treats yeah. its contractors. Yeah. I mean, we're unit members. So, I mean, I, so now I'm curious, like for, for anybody listening with, with that kind of background that want, like, how do you even get into that? Obviously you were kind of funneled because you were part of that, that group, but somebody who's not that, is that even realistic to say, well, I, I would want to go do that. Like how would they yeah, um, have a recruiting department? They do. Uh, additionally, there's a lot of um, opportunities for uh, military in service to do a joint, uh, joint like deployment, joint duty station, I guess, I gotcha. assignment. Um, so there were a lot of individuals like that, you yeah. know, uh, they would, you know, get deployed downrange and they were yeah. filling different types of roles, yeah. ITC or, um, well, actually all of our, all of our <coughs> ITCs came from the jib, um, what is ITC? uh, ISR tactical controller. Okay. I, a lot of the stuff that I ask, I know what it means, but correct. I get yeah, a, you got a lot of uh, comments are like, dude, I have no idea I know, what the I, fuck I, you guys are talking about. I know. So. I start rolling and it's yeah. just like all acronyms. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, you did that for how long until you decided I'm going to start my own company? Uh, so that that role was two years and I was just like back to back deployments. Um, and at the time I, I was... Uh, I'm remarried. Obviously, I have you know my my children now. We had just uh, had our first daughter, and uh, actually, my my first deployment with them was while she was pregnant, mm -hmm. and then uh, you know I got back and was there for the birth, um, and then our you know she grew up and was like crawling when I left for the next deployment. And by the time I came home, or she had, she hadn't even started crawling yet. Actually, by the time I came home, she was walking. Yeah. You know, and it was crazy. And telling you to fuck off. Yeah, right. <laughs> Already, right. yeah. But uh, uh, so from there, I, um, you know, my wife was like, "All right, you know, these deployments yeah. got to slow down or stop." Uh, and I tried to work with them to, to try to stay there, but do something a little different, get some dwell time, and it just it wasn't going to happen. So I went over to. Uh, the unit cyber tier and uh, just did that all in for three years. 
And what does that consist of? Um, so my official title was cyber operations SME, you know, subject matter expert. Uh, and essentially, you know, the JSOC's cyber element. Um, and, you know, doing cyber operations. I mean, like to, to coin a term, like, I mean, is it, is there any hacking type stuff involved? Oh, yeah. oh okay. Yeah, so it, absolutely. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's all hacking, um, to a degree, uh, and, and utilizing cyber intelligence, um, from those types of things to enhance understanding for those fine fix, fine fix, finish operations. From your perspective of having spent three years heavy, heavy into that, uh, I guess two questions. One is. The, the training, does it come from the government? Do they lean on, like you see some some TV and, and movies where they're like recruiting these 16-year-old fucking whiz kids out of out of basements? Like, how, how are they teaching you how to do this stuff um, is the first question. I'll, I'll ask the second one, I guess, after okay. that. But. Uh, so the military has a pipeline for uh, the, the cyber operators that actually execute code. Um, and, and that pipeline's pretty intensive, but it relies a lot on industry standards. Um, you know, so in the, I guess, uh, cyber world, it's called ethical hacking. Um, and, and that, uh, whole genre and, and kind of like industry has its own standards and certifications, um, you know, courses and certifications that you would go through. Uh, so the, the pipeline for that relies heavily on those. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, these cyber operators are basically taught how to use the GOTS tools, so government off the shelf. Okay. Um, you know, so the government essentially goes to contract companies and says, we need this capability. They build it. And it's, uh, you know, the way I like to equate the analogy is that they build Ferraris and Lamborghinis, right? And then you go out and drive this on Sunday to one or two places, but everyone sees you driving it. And you're only as effective as, you know, you can create a pathway of surprise. Uh, Where in reality, what we really need to be doing is taking COTS tools, so commercial off the shelf, uh, and where you know they don't cost the price of a Lamborghini, uh, you could go out and buy you know three hundred Toyota Corollas, and then you can just take that Toyota Corolla and drive it straight into the side of the Walmart, yeah, and do it from all sides, and someone's getting through, you know. So these products, they're viruses. They're yeah. Uh, so when you get down into the ones and zeros, uh, basically everything works off of uh, standard protocols, right? So the, the computers know how to speak to each other using certain languages and certain, uh, protocols and approaches. And ultimately hacking is just tricking the machine, um, into thinking one way or another that it's performing the right operation, but you're, you're just tricking it in a a way. So in your analogy with the Lamborghini and Ferrari is that 
if these viruses are so well done and so complex and so good that they they actually draw so much attention like everybody's like holy fuck this is a, a state operated yeah like everybody a, knows it's a signature that. okay and wow, that's fascinating and, and the problem with that is you don't drive your lamborghini to go get groceries yeah you take not it out that attitude yeah, yeah, yeah right <laughs> you know when you're spending that kind of money you, yeah. it's not your everyday driver right um, and so unfortunately the, the way that the U S military is, uh, approached cyber has been challenging. Yeah. Um, I think we're getting better, but unfortunately there's just so much, uh, control from such a high level in the government yeah. that, uh, you know, there, there's just this fear of, Oh, well, you know, this is an act of war. Yeah. Well, no, it's not. Look at what our adversaries are doing. Yeah. Well, th the reason I asked that and, and, and why I have the second question I have is, is kind of along the same vein, but is that, you know, with, within the government, everything is, is so delayed and that's an industry where it's so fast moving that I, I can see where that would be a challenge. And also when you have somebody, you know, who's 78 years old, that's making the decision that has truly no concept of what they're making a decision on, like that's a fucking dangerous combination. Highly. Um, which leads to my second question is that if you look at, the globe, ethical hackers, state hackers, whatever, just ha hacking from a capability standpoint, uh, where does the United States sit ranking-wise with everybody else, uh, state-wise? Um, my personal opinion, uh, capability, we're up there. Yeah. Our, our desire to use it and our... Uh, you know the the methodology in which we do use it we we can't even compete just because we're not willing to willing so i mean would you say when you say we're up there we're as good as anybody yes okay um it, it seems like there there's a component of you, you you have to be able to be uh you know offensively as good as anybody to be able to be defensively competent is that yeah a, yeah our defense is is not good yeah we um so that those don't really go hand in hand they do way? no 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 they absolutely do okay but our our ineptitude and our inability to push our offense leaves us a weak defense okay do you see that changing does it does it matter who's in the white house it does not really um because they don't they don't make the laws uh so whose fault is it congress how do you change that uh, so I'm working with some folks to do that. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I won't name them, but there's some, some senators, yeah. uh, and, and, uh, representatives that are aware of some of this. And, uh, actually the, the Marine Corps is trying to push some of these things and they're creating a cyber auxiliary force, yeah. uh, which is, you know, co-opting those 16 year old hackers, right? Okay. Like, so we're getting there. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's uh, going to take time to build. And, you know, in order to do that, you also have to look at other things like, for instance, you know, drugs, right? Like a lot of these kids that are into hacking are also on drugs. They're using, you know, recreationally yeah. or for performance enhancement. Yeah. Um, so, and so we have to look at look at that differently so you're going to need an adderall waiver for uh <laughs> for the fucking background check yeah uh, that's fucking nuts man um if, if you're looking if you're going kind of state state-sponsored terrorist hacking capability china or russia 
is is one better than the other from your perspective um they're different so russia is just uh much more uh open in what they do um they're they're definitely not trying to cover up their signature as much they obfuscate through using you know like uh non-military paramilitary uh elements or atps is what they call them um advanced threat or advanced persistent threat apt yeah uh and and so i think that they're a lot looser in what they do and and how they approach it um they're just reckless where china's uh a lot more focused and controlled and deliberate in what they do. You know, things like the uh, OPM hack, Yeah. right? Like they're using it to think 10, 15 years down the road, who are they going to co-opt as sources, um, you know, to further their goals. And, and the OPM hack was what? Uh, so the Office of uh, Personnel, Personnel Management. Management uh, so basically China hacked, hacked that back in 2012 or 13. Uh, and essentially got all the records of everyone who has a security clearance yeah, and everything associated to that, right? So like OPM does all their background investigations and then has all that data stored, yeah. right? So you can then go see, okay, well, this person was, you know, what red flags happened in, in their investigation. Those are now vulnerabilities that China can exploit. They can send uh, the 23-year-old the honeypot you know, like they did with the fucking congressman uh, with Swalwell. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm sure there's a time. Fang fang. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Outside of Russia and China, is there another player that that you don't hear about, or that you would say is worth worrying about, Iran? Or- uh, Iran, North Korea. Um, you know, one of the uh, opposite to that. Uh, we have some allies out there that are incredible in that space. Ukraine if we use it correctly, right? But, you know, if you look at the way that we're aligning to Ukraine right now, um, essentially the U.S. government is creating slush funds out of all the funding. Yeah, it's going ATM over for them. It is. Yeah. Uh, it's not effective. I'm, you know, and I know uh, from, you know, firsthand knowledge, I've been over to Kiev and, and talked to them on the ground. You know, I know what... In this position? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no. As uh, for my company, okay. as a defense contractor, trying to uh, build contract opportunities for my company, yeah, uh, and and support the Ukrainian people. You yeah. know, because I, as much of the politics that are involved at the highest echelons, it looks very much like an orchestrated war, but on the ground, it's a real war. Yeah. Right. Like there's people dying and there's civilians dying daily. Um, it's it's crazy so i mean to delve into that for a for a hot second um it sounds like you're a supporter of our support for ukraine not in the fashion we're doing it okay i think that ultimately uh we do need to support ukraine to stand up against russia because it doesn't stop with ukraine and then ultimately we're nato allies so article 5 gets pulled and we're engaged anyway if they, um, if they go past Ukraine. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And they have every ambition to do so. Uh, Putin wants to reinstate the Soviet empire. Uh, you know, it's his goal. Um, so, so I am an advocate in 
it is it is our responsibility for our, our national security interests to be engaged but in just that in a much different way. I I think so. Yeah. And so you start your own business after the culmination of uh, you know the three years spent as a contractor. Talk us through that. Yeah. So my my time at JCOG, which is the Joint Cyber Operations Group, uh, I get there in 2018. I had uh, just started my undergraduate or completion of that. Uh, so I'm doing international relations and diplomacy. And so I, I get to start studying and taking a look at uh, global geopolitics. You know, I come out from these, uh, you know, regional conflicts that we've been hyper-focused on, you know, especially JSOC, just, uh, you know, just in the grind, right? Um and I'm able to kind of like pull my head back and, and look at what all's going on. And I, I look at, uh, you know, the shifts in global order and global power, um, really start diving into our national security doctrine and, and approach and strategies. Um, you know, and so I'm reading the uh, 2017 national security strategy, 2018 defense strategy, things of that nature, looking at uh, PPD 20, which is a, uh, presidential policy directive guiding cyber operations. And, and so I'm looking at all these things from a, a different mindset. Um, and I start to realize that, you know, we're hyper-focused on these regional conflicts, not paying attention to what China and Russia are doing to uh, essentially, you know, repave what geopolitics and what their regional, um, you know, uh, hegemon activity looks like and and how they've actually been growing and expanding their global influence um you know and so i'm looking at that problem set and realizing that we're not doing enough to get after it uh so i i start kind of beating the drum on that internally at jcog and and my squadron commander uh amazing man just highly intelligent and efficient at his job uh, and understanding that that bigger picture and those dynamics. Uh, so I start working with him and talking to him about, you know, what I, I think we should be doing and working on some of those more, uh, low equity exploits, low equity opportunities for, for, uh, cost solutions and enabling partners doing, you know, soft enabled cyber operations, uh, or partner enabled, I should say. Um, and and so we look at that as a concept and i eventually get the the blessing to go forward to afghanistan uh as a contractor there and embed within one of the 127 echo programs uh to develop this kind of cots enabled over the horizon capability because at this time it's 2019 we see the writing on the wall afghan's gonna go away but one, in the 127 echo and cots uh, yeah, 127 Echo is a, a congressional line of funding that allows for uh, specialized operations that um, are sensitive in nature and, and a secretive type of program, but allow us uh, the ability to enable our partner forces. There's no room for fraud there. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, heavy cash, heavy, yeah. Uh, heavy influence. And Zero oversight. Yeah, lots yeah. of. <laughs> but um, bags of cash overseas, no accountability, auditing, or oversight. Yeah, what could what could possibly go wrong? 
you know, there, there's definitely been a, a few occasions. I think you alluded to one earlier. Yeah. Um, but you know, given, given the caliber of, of men that are doing this yeah. men and women, uh, it, it typically does go well. Yeah. And um, then cots. Cots is commercial off the shelf. Oh, so, right. uh, you know, we're looking at essentially what I was deployed to go do, um, was take equipment that you can get on the open market, repurpose it, retool it, uh, with some firmware. I got you. Um, and, and then basically hyper enable our partner force, uh, to go out and either can, you know, conduct cyber activities or collection. Uh, and, and so ultimately basically I'm in my chew, like 19 hour days teaching myself how to code and like repurpose these raspberry Pis to go do this kind of stuff. And, uh, and it was highly effective. I mean, we were changing the game until the lawyers got involved. And, you know, then the whole argument of title 10, title 50, uh, for us law and military operations and how those are conducted, whether they're operational acts or intelligence operations, um, you know, the, the water gets muddy for that when you start talking cyber, um, and it's mostly just people trying to protect rice bowls. Uh, you know, U.S. Cyber Command being stood up as a combatant command, is, it, it's the same story, you know, like with MARSOC standing up within the Marine Corps, there's going to be a fight against that. People yeah. don't want to see their best go somewhere else sure. and, and fall under something different, yeah. you know. So um, within that, you know, the lawyers will ultimately squash what we did, but the, the capabilities that I developed were highly effective and, and used. Uh, and iterated upon and so uh, those are are now actually you know tools in development or use I should say not even development anymore yeah um but you know that that feeling of just the machine the bureaucracy crushing our ability to innovate and and adapt fast enough to gain parity with China and Russia yeah uh just put a taste in my mouth. I was like, all right, you know, if I can't do this from within, I'm going to go forward and just start my own company to do it myself. Yeah. Man, and, awesome. and COVID gave me that, uh, ability to kind of like be at home enough yeah. that I was able to really start thinking about how I could put that into practice yeah. and make it a reality. You know, it's, it's amazing. Uh, COVID was a revealer in a lot of ways in, in, you know, on an individual level, the government, I mean, it, it really, I mean, it's kind of almost like money, like money reveals who people are, you know, yeah, um, yeah. because, you know, some people were like, oh, fuck, can't work Netflix and fucking Instacart. And, uh, you know, I guess I'll just sit here and wait. And other people are like, okay, well this, this door is closed, but now I have this time to do what I want. You know, I mean that, that book unfuck America w- was a result of that. Uh, as well as doing a, a lot of online one-on-one training, you know, dog training calls with people. And it was like, okay, my hand is forced into, into these boxes. What can I do with, with these boxes, you know, and, and people either took advantage of, of a new opportunity and figured out a way to, to make something positive, or they're like, well, I guess I'm fucked. I'm out of a job and I'll just sit here. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating, I think, into the, a look into kind of the human psyche of, of what something like that does and reveals with people. But, oh, absolutely. Um, I want to address something with that too, because from that has been a pretty significant impact, I think on our, 
our society and our culture. Yeah. And, and those two paths, uh, ultimately create a polarization mm -hmm. and the people that go down that path of, well, this is my circumstance, victimhood. Yeah, that's perfect. Uh, there's a mental health component that comes t from that, you know? Yeah. And, and those people find themselves in situations that they don't feel they can pull themselves out of and they let it just consume them. Yeah. And I think that our country is, is suffering from that now because of that. Yeah, agreed. And, and I think, you know, when you, uh, I guess, weave the, the TikTok algorithms or, or we'll just say social media algorithms of kind of sensationalizing victimhood and, and rewarding it and making it like this thing that people now almost gravitate, not almost, I mean, they do gravitate towards because it's like it's it's being emboldened it's being highlighted it's being rewarded you know and to me it's like and this is something that i i talk to my kids about often you know it's like the uh, comparison is the thief of joy you know it's like stop worrying about what everybody else's fucking deal is like well, why do they have this and why don't i get you know it's like there's this other side of the coin of people who have a way shittier deal than you like i don't give a fuck what position you're in You'll always be able to find somebody with a better deal than you and somebody with a worse deal than you. You know, trying to compare that is is fruitless. And again, it, it's the thief of joy. But also, it's like no matter what your circumstance, like you can you can string along the worst circumstances in the world that somebody's been through as a child, as an adult, as both, whatever. And you can spend your entire life dwelling on that, or you can say, okay all of these terrible fucking things happened and I went through, I have all these traumas, et cetera. What are you going to do about it? Like at this point, that, that, that's what you have. You have two choices. You can do something with it or you can sit and dwell on it. Like it's really that fucking simple. And, and it's not to take away from, you know, what people have been through or any struggles, but, but everybody has them, you know, and you either fucking use them to your advantage or you let them destroy you. And, and like to me, to continue to dwell on them, they're just continuing to hurt you. Like why, why let them do that? Um, anyway, not to get off on a fucking tangent, but no, no, I think, I think that's very important because, uh, you see that even in the veteran community, yeah, right? Like the thing that makes us who we are, that adversity that shows a man or woman, their true colors and, and what makes them, you know, just human yeah. and, and the drive to continue beyond that, uh, and find your way. The obstacle is the way, right? Like find your way through that into this new person that you can become um even in the veteran community where we're given that opportunity over and over and we're faced with lots of challenging situations where it's life or death and and you don't have a choice but to push through uh that that is special even veterans don't take advantage of that and they fall into this victimhood mentality um you know and and it it is definitely something that is plaguing our, our society and our community. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you take advantage of COVID, you get your company set up, and then and then you full speed ahead. Uh, what was your first contract? Uh, so the way that I uh, set it up is I, I wanted to be able to put everything into it, my, my full attention. And so I raised uh, enough capital, investment capital, to be able to give us one year of runway. 
Um, and that was to, you know, cover everything from, you know, all the expenses for overhead, just everything you can imagine. Vegas like trips, the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> we did a Vegas trip. Uh, we went to SHOT Show, yeah. which was extremely beneficial. No shit. Oh, yeah. That's for nice. the relationship building with different manufacturers. and Well, that makes the folks. one of us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I haven't been to a, to a business successful SHOT Show yet, but uh, yeah. <laughs> It, it always turns into a fucking melee. It, but it, you know, you need some of that sometimes. Oh, for sure. It builds those relationships. Oh, no doubt. Uh, but yeah, to to your question. Um, so I, I, I set it up so that we would have that one year runway. And that that gave me the opportunity to be able to walk away from, you know, my, my role as a contractor in JSOC uh, and, and dive into this, you know, full force. Um, the, the first contract that we ended up getting was a, a security contract for National Park Services. So we, and we still have this. Uh, we're performing unarmed security against, or not against, at, at uh, National Monuments in New York City. Oh, so nice. it, it, it's a, you know, a, a good, good contract. It creates enough stability for the company that, you know, operations can continue. Um, our, uh, our first, and, and that's a, a subcontract award. So we're on a couple other, you know, IDIQs supporting soft. That's um, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, I'll just rattle acronyms <laughs> all day long. Uh, and, and so uh, we're supporting uh, SOCOM for that. And then uh, another one for Marfor Cyber uh, supporting cyber vulnerability research. Uh, so those are kind of some steady state contracts. We want a prime contract delivering night vision goggles, um, for us marshals. So I've been trying to get in place, uh, follow on contracts in, in that realm. Um, we answered some, uh, RFIs to the Pentagon early on in the, uh, Ukraine, uh, war that, uh, would have provided that opportunity. But, um, you know, I kind of alluded to the whole slush fund concept. Uh, I have, you know, firsthand knowledge and, and where some of that money went and didn't go. Yeah. Um, you know, we had been engaging with the, the Pentagon's, uh, office of the undersecretary of defense for acquisition and sales for this contract and was the reason that I decided to go to Kiev in the first place. Um, cause I needed to get the ground truth from them. You know, we we're being told one thing by the Pentagon about, you know, where, the, uh, night vision goggles fell in their priority list. Uh, so I went downrange to, you know, speak to the uh, uh, Ministry of Defense and their GUR, uh, which is their uh, special operations component underneath the Ministry of Defense and, and Intelligence Directorate. And, uh, you know, the ground truth that I got there was very different than what we were hearing. And so, you know, in in that time frame, I've been trying to get those two ends to, to meet up in the middle somewhere. Uh, to try and you know get that contract further, but um, uh, some of our other work is in the kind of Intel space. Uh, so we've developed a software product uh, that ultimately takes a lot of the the things that I was doing as a targeter on the high side on you know top secret uh, channels and you know highly classified uh, technologies. Essentially, I. I have found ways to replicate that with unclassified information um, because the way that I see the, the true great power competition unfolding is through our partners and allies. 
Um, you know, I mean, even if you just look at re Ukraine right now, for instance, we're actively combating Russia through a proxy war. Yeah. Um, and and if you look at some of the stuff going on in the background, uh, we're not as effective as we should be because of the classification of the intelligence and what can get downgraded and shared to the Ukrainians uh, is just not going to be as effective as if that same information exists on a completely unclassified system yeah. that both sides are using. Yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, what I'm developing and, and trying to get out into the, into the realm. Uh, we also have some pretty advanced technology that we're working, uh, in the drone space. Oh, you know, cool. Ukraine has definitely opened up that, that world, yeah. you know, and you see the, yeah, it's, wild. It, it's some of the shit they're doing with drones. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, especially when you look at the fact that the, the men in the mud on the ground that's like back to world war one trench yeah. warfare you yeah. know coupled with this high highly advanced technology yeah that's a strange duality no doubt for sure um all right so company things are going well um big big part of why you're here is an, an incident happens based on medication that you're misprescribed through the va can you talk tell us about you know a the medication like what what led to you being prescribed that, and then ultimately what happened, and, and what's going on now with uh, this court court problem? Yes, absolutely. So uh, back in 2017, while I was you know pushing out on these deployments with JSOC, uh, you know we're working highly complicated missions. You know I'm controlling multiple lines of ISR incorporating signals intelligence human intelligence uh you know geoint every, everything you can imagine pulling all of that data together i'm staring in front of a computer screen 18 hour days in the jock is just crushing me um and by this point i'd just come back from that first deployment doing this and uh in 2016 i came back and then 2017 i find myself uh just not performing well um, the, the effects of my time in the military and these deployments are starting to compound. I'm getting older. Uh, you know, the symptoms of my PTS and TBI are really kicking in. I have, I'm having trouble sleeping at night. I've got, you know, horrible night sweats, uh, night terrors, uh, a lot of honestly survivor's guilt. Um, just dealing with all the, the friends and, you know, brothers that I lost over there and uh you know having come out of the shadows of some of that um I went to the VA you know like that's what we're told to do like go get help and uh you know so I went to them and told them like hey these are my symptoms I had a co-worker that uh you know was a veteran also special ops guy um he came from the Green Berets and, you know, he told me like, Hey, I went to the VA and they gave me this. It was, uh, I think they gave him pro vigil was the medication and, uh, and it really helped him, you know? So I, I went to, to my, uh, community based outpatient clinic, which was down in Fredericksburg, Virginia and engaged with the, my you know primary care doctor explained what was going on. I told him that, you know, I have these, uh, these issues going on. I can't focus at work. I'm falling asleep. I, you know, I'm having trouble staying awake, staying alert, staying focused on task. Uh, and my sleep is just horrendous, you know? So there's like, I'm in this cycle that I can't get out of. Uh, and you know, I have this friend that is on this medication and it seems to be helping him, 
you know, is there an opportunity for me? And they said, well, you know, there's this other version of that called New Vigil. Um, you know, we could put you on that. And, then, you know, so I did it and uh, got it prescribed. And this was like fall of 2017. I'm uh, getting ready for another deployment, go back out the door. And they gave me, you know, like a 30-day prescription of this. It's a highly controlled substance, you know, so they there's certain protocols they got to follow. And, uh, and so I go to request a 120 day supply cause I'm going to be deployed for four months. And, you know, the VA says they can't do that, um, without like a sleep study, but I'm pumping out in two days and they want me to come sleep overnight for two days. And I, I just can't do it. I got to get doctor appointments, uh, like all these things, you know, and, and, um, get cleared hot to go to deploy. And this is my livelihood, you know, this is how I make my money, uh, support my family. So, you know, I, I told them like, I, I cannot make this uh, sleep study. Is there something else that we could do? And I'm, you know, this is all documented through VA's secure messaging platform. Um, so the doctor calls me and, and she's like, hey, we have a you know possible solution here. We could transfer the medication to a civilian provider because you have, uh, you know, civilian insurance for your job. And ultimately we'll just transfer the medication. We'll maintain oversight, you know, and it's still in your records. We know that you're taking it and watching for other, you know, contraindications, other medications, things like that. Right. Um, and, and so I'd find a civilian doctor that'll give me that 120 day supply so I can go to play with it. And that's what we did. Um, you know, the VA kept me on it, uh, looking back in retrospect, uh, we just found this new study from the uh, FDA that you should not be on this for over 12 weeks at a time. I was on it for four and a half years. Oh, and, wow. uh, you know, the, the longest known study only lasted two years and they ended it because everyone started getting psychosis and hallucinations. Wow. And it's a, a known side effect of this drug. But I was never informed of these things, you know. Did it do what it was supposed to do work-wise? Like it did. Um, you know, it's it's considered a stimulant. So the idea is you take it in the morning. It regulates your ups so that your body's, like, on point when you need to be. And then it, it kind of tailors off, and your body's natural circadian rhythm takes over, and you go to sleep. And it worked. It was working for me. Um, you know, I was able to, to function at work again. I went forward on that deployment, and absolutely crushed it you know uh it's you know it's kind of i think the movie limitless yeah. is based on this drug oh okay um you know so that gives you an idea of yeah. like the power of it did they entertain um I'm trying to think of the like adderall or vivance or any of that kind of stuff in, instead or i uh, you know it just i don't know it, yeah. it didn't come up um because I, mean, I had that, that stuff is probably any better, I think, for that amount of time. I don't know. I know a lot of people are on that shit, but right, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and for for the most part, I thought I was being responsible with it. Uh, you know, even with the the length of time I was taking it, uh, I was only taking it when I was working. Yeah, you know, so like I had periods of time where I just didn't take it at all. You know, multiple days in a row, weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. Did it, was it hard on you to go on and off it? Like, does your body get used to it? It doesn't no. have withdrawals or anything? Yeah, no withdrawals. Um, you know, so in, in my mind, I was being responsible, doing the right thing. Uh, I had gone through all the procedures to, to be on this and it was helping, you know, it was addressing some of the problems. 
Uh, now, when I get to the, the actual misprescription of it, there's some nuance because uh, when I got out in 2014 and went to the VA for my disability and compensation um, claims, you know, as I was instructed to do when I got out, uh, they rated me ultimately at 90% uh, disability and I had like 50 or no, it was 70% for PTSD. And at the time, you know, I found this out later doing some research, uh, the VA had this huge scandal where docs were misdiagnosing TBI as PTSD on purpose because their, their justification was that PTSD goes away and we can bring these ratings down and not have to pay out veterans, um, you know, for the disability yeah. claims. And, uh, and so despite having multiple documented TBIs in my medical records, and that I claimed it, they gave me 0% on that. And so when my primary care doctor went to go prescribe that, I had 0% for TPI, so there's no contraindication where this is not an ideal drug for someone with traumatic brain injury. I gotcha. And, and so, you know, this all comes out after the fact because of this incident that occurred. Um, so leading up to that incident, uh, it happened February 15th, 2022. And, uh, you know, I started my company in March of 2021. So I had that one year runway, right? And we're, we're coming up on February. Uh, it's like towards the tail end of January. And I know that, you know, we only got about a month and a half left. I've got employees that are on overhead with me helping to try to build the business. Uh, but we just don't have the revenue, the, the cash flow to be able to support them without that investment funding. Right. So like the contracts that we have only are going to cover so much overhead. Yeah. And so I know that, like, you know, shit's about to go down and I'm going to have to make some really hard decisions. Uh, so, you know, I just did what I do best and like went to work and, uh, you know, and, and that's that, that whole path, right? Like adversity and overcome it or become a victim and succumb to it. Right. Like, so, and I chose that, that other path. I'm, I'm going to find a way out, you know? And, and so all I could do is just work harder. And the thing that I sacrificed was my sleep. Um, you know, I just went back to what I knew and, uh, I was working crazy hours and, and we were starting to see some success. You know, we, I, I locked in a couple of contracts, um, you know, we're licensed for private investigative services. So I was, you know, doing this, uh, private investigative work for a couple of commercial companies. And, uh, you know, it was intensive, right? Like the, the amount of work that I had to put into that was crazy. And so I'm sleeping like two or three hours a night, um, just doing everything I can to just find new opportunities. Uh, and so we found an opportunity with Marsoc where uh, ultimately this, this software tool that, that I've developed now um, at the time was under, you know, early development and, this contract vehicle that we found with a, another prime that I had originally worked for. So I had a good relationship with them. I leveraged that. Uh, they had an R and D contract, which they were the sole source award to and research and development for cyber. And so basically we would be able to leverage that vehicle to bring Marsoc in as the customer and develop this tool in in tandem with their requirements, right? And so in real time, we're developing it and getting feedback, user, you know, user feedback for what they need on the back end. 
and uh and so the the two weeks leading up to this event i'm just like crushing it going to all these different meetings pulling other entities into the fold on this you know because you can't do anything alone you got to find the experts that are really good at their aspect of it and bring them into it right as a, a team um and so i'm building the team getting everything ready and i secure this meeting with marsoc to go pitch them and get their final buy-in so that we can get this contract off the ground and running and this is going to fix everything you know so uh the meetings for february 15th at 10 30 in the morning uh obviously you know i've been working my ass off so my family's suffering from this you know i'm not spending any time with them so the day before is valentine's day and i took the whole day off i wanted to be with my wife um you know instead of like going down the night before and being there so i spend the day with her and you know, because I took that day off, I fell behind on something. I had to get that that uh, PI work completed, the report uh, collated and, and finalized to get out the door the next morning. It was due the 15th. And so I, I stayed up till about midnight um, working on that and just finally had to crash. I went to sleep for about an hour. And I woke up, finished the report, and then got on the road. And... Um, you know, I was under extreme stress, a lack of sleep, and then this drug, uh, and you know, high amounts of caffeine just to you know, stay alive and make the drive down there. So you'd, you were still on the new vigil at this yes. point. Yes, um, you know, and and something happened along the way down there. It just uh, the medication took over, and the, all the psychosis and the hallucinations um, happened. I completely blacked out i don't even remember uh like getting to my friend's house um which the the kind of goal was to get to a friend's house drop my vehicle off right on base with him because i didn't have access to get on the compound anymore uh and at some point driving into that area uh something about just being back in that you know my old stomping grounds I hadn't been down there. Uh, no, Jacksonville. Jacksonville. Yep, yep. So I'm driving over to Stone Bay where Marsoc has his headquarters. I hadn't been down there in years, you know, so um, perhaps something of, of that nature brought the you know, flashbacks or something. I don't know. But it, I just completely blacked out. And um, I get to his house, and, uh, you know, this is all based on their testimony some footage from his ring camera, phone calls, text messages, and some CCTV footage, but ultimately we were able to kind of piece things together. And, uh, you know, he knew something was wrong right away because I wasn't acting normal. And he called another friend of mine who came off base, and, uh, and they had me both at the house and um, were just trying to get me to stay there. They told me that, you know, we can't take you on base like this. You know, there's something going on. Uh, and, you know, they're just trying to keep me contained. And at some point I decided to leave, got in my vehicle and started driving home. Um, I'm, you know, must've known something wasn't right. And, uh, you know, you go into fight or flight, right? So, uh, at some point I, pull over at a location along the, the route home right outside of Jacksonville and um, got a, just got out of my car 
uh, was pretty angry, like slamming my phone on the ground, was smashing it. Um, apparently, I'd been talking to my wife and thought she was the devil, and I was here to purge evil from the world. And uh, I got my pistol out of my car and just started wildly shooting it into the air and put a couple rounds into traffic, uh, hit two vehicles passing by. Fortunately, no one was injured. Um, you know, just kind of hit the exterior of the vehicles. Uh, two rounds did. And, at, and I shot up my own car. Um, ended up putting a round right through the center console and hit the, you know, we know all this from after the fact the vehicle got totaled, but, uh, at the time I was still running and I got back in it and drove further, uh, until it just kind of rolled to a dead stop somewhere outside of town. Eventually they, uh, my buddies got me on the phone and got me to share my GPS location and they came and picked me up, brought me back to that house. But when, when they got to that site and these, you know, raiders, right. So like they know their stuff, they know what, what to look for and everything. Um, it was a pretty obvious site. The vehicle had been destroyed. You know, there's uh, smoke all over the inside of it. The heater core had exploded and thrown uh, antifreeze or whatever the, the heater fluid is uh, everywhere and melted down the, the computer essentially. But, uh, you know, so they knew something had happened. My pistols, the slide locked to the rear, you know, so my buddy knew something was wrong, you know, but, they saw that as the crime scene um, or, you know, it wasn't necessarily a crime in their minds because I'd shot my own vehicle. Uh, no one was injured. There were no police there. So, you know, their thoughts were like, all right, we got to get you to safety, get you to a, a mental health hospital. Um, by that point, my wife was already coming down from Virginia, uh, you know, and, and we know like through discovery where the detectives had released all this information, um, you know, text messages and everything. She already knew right then there was a medical uh, or was a reaction from the medication. And, you know, and that's in text messages, right? Like we have that as evidence. The state has that as evidence. Um, the, the testimonies from these raiders, like it's all there. You just got to put all those pieces together and, and look at it as what happened is the medication caused this incident it was not a criminal action. You know, I didn't intend to do that. I was not physically or consciously aware of what was going on. Um, but, you know, ultimately, uh, we started to drive back up to Virginia, left the vehicle at a, a shop there, got it towed and, and whatnot. Um, and I'm still not, like, there. Uh, uh, at some point along the way back up to Virginia, uh, Onslow County Sheriff, which is the, the county where this happened, uh, detective calls and uh, starts asking questions, you know, and, and I'm talking to him. And I really don't remember much of this conversation. I, I know that I was speaking to law enforcement, um, but I, I don't remember the conversation. I only have the transcripts. Ultimately, he basically said, like, hey, we need to talk to you. And I was like, all right, well, you're talking to me. Uh, what, what can I help you with? And they're like, well, you know, we have some video footage. You look pretty angry, and we just need to make sure you're okay. And I t 
told them that I was okay. I'm with my wife uh, in Virginia and, you know, headed home. I said, well, we need to see you. And, uh, and I said, well, I can FaceTime you, whatever, whatever you need, you know, I'm here, but I'm in Virginia now. Uh, they said, well, no, we need to see you in person. Um, we need to be able to close our case out. And I said, okay, do I need a lawyer? Uh, is there something wrong? And I said, well, you know, as a U.S. citizen, anytime you're in dealing with law enforcement, you're entitled to a lawyer. But there's no charges. Uh, you have nothing to worry about. Um, we just need to see you in person and verify that this is you and be able to close our case out. And I said, okay, well, if that's the case, can I come back down there, uh, you know, on Monday? And, and they said, yeah, that'd be fine. And so I have all these transcripts. Uh, and that was not the case. As soon as we got off the call, that detective filed a warrant for my arrest in Virginia as a felon fugitive from justice. And, um, you know, so I get back to Virginia. And uh, by this point, it's like the day after and it's evening. Um, and I'm starting to kind of like be myself again. Uh, had you taken? Had you stopped taking the medication? Oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. Do you you normally take it once a day? Once a day in the mornings. <clears throat> uh, a couple of questions before we get further into the story. Um, what, what was the last point that you remember driving Dri down there? Driving into Jacksonville, and then the and then it's black, and then th there wasn't like a and then I remember from here on it was more of a gradual. It was yeah, gradual. Like just feeling uh, like have you ever fainted? I haven't. Okay. Um, like when you come back from that, it's it's like almost, have you ever been like frag or uh, like a concussion grenade? Yeah, I've, I've been yeah, knocked okay. out. But yeah. So it's like that. When you come back to, you're like trying to figure out what's going on and get your bearings. Yeah. It was a lot of that, but in and out. Is there a moment that, that's legit the first moment that you, you can for sure remember? Yes. Which was what? Getting arrested. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Okay. So even when you're talking to him, you're going back. uh it's still foggy and you don't really remember much of it No. So at what point were you arrested? Uh, so that night, okay. um, it was dark. So, I, you know, this was February. So I, it had to have been at least after six, 6 PM. Um, they basically did a call out. They had their full SWAT team, dogs, breachers, uh, armored vehicles, wow. everything you can imagine. Um, but your kids are in the house. Yeah. Yeah. And, and my in-laws because, you know, they came in to watch the kids while my wife came down to get me. Um, and you know, they, fortunately their our sheriff's department in my hometown are very prudent and, uh, tactically, you know, efficient and, and just intelligent people. Uh, and they gave me the opportunity to come out and of course I'm going to do that. You know, I'm not trying to put up a fight. Um, but I still didn't know what was going on. I, at this point thought I had only shot my car. Um, you know, and so I, I go outside and, uh, my wife had crapped the phone, you know, right before I uh, got off with them. And she's like, Hey, we have small children. I don't want any lights, you know, like this can be done professionally because I don't need my children knowing what's going on. Um, and, you know, thank God she had that kind of awareness to, to make that call. But, you know, I went outside and it was, uh, it was very surreal. You know, they, they just grabbed me, walked me through my backyard to the alley 
um, where they had like another 10 vehicles and a whole complement waiting to breach the back door. And, you know, they put me in cuffs and drove me to the station and, and booked me. Um, they charge you at that point? No. It, all I knew is that I was being charged as a felon fugitive from justice okay. for North, from North Carolina under extradition laws. <clears throat> and, uh, and so the idea was, you know, North Carolina was going to come up, extradite me back to their state to give me charges. Uh, however, they left me in jail for two and a half weeks um, while they tried to find a driver. One person just come up and get me, um, you know, and, and their justification was that this is 2022. Their justification was that COVID, uh, was, was a reason that they could draw it out as long as they wanted. Um, and they, they took it all the way up until the day before, like if, if they hadn't come and pick me up that next day, I would have been released. Uh, so it's, you know, there's, there's definitely an, Gaming. Yeah, there's some gamemanship going on, you know, and um, so I get down to North Carolina and I'm released within an hour on on bail. What, uh, what was your charge in North Carolina? So when I get to North Carolina, I find out that I'm being charged with two felonies uh, and two misdemeanors. So the, the felonies are uh, something along the lines of the criminal intent uh, uh, or criminal so criminal conduct and discharging a firearm into occupied vehicle, some of that nature, or felony conduct, something like that. Um, so two charges of that, and then a misdemeanor for violation of a city ordinance, discharging a firearm, and uh, I guess one of the rounds hit a hit the side of a building, so there's property damage in excess of two hundred dollars. Uh, you know, and so at this point, I get released. I have my lawyer, who my wife has already you know, she's amazing. She's an incredible person. She, uh, basically made it her job to figure out what was going on and fight like hell for me. Um, and so she had secured a, a really great lawyer down in North Carolina, who's a former Marine. Uh, so he gets it, you know, and, and, and in fact, he had worked as a prosecutor, um, in this County. And so he knows that game. Um, and, and, Basically, he shows me the footage, the CCTV footage of it happening. Where was the footage from? Like a restaurant it was, or something? Yeah, adjacent building, yeah. just looking down into that parking lot. Um, and that was just earth-shattering for me to see, to see myself acting in a way that I couldn't even remember. Um, but much less, like in my conscious state of mind, I would never act like that. Uh, you know, like as a trained operator, you, we know how to handle firearms and I was not doing that. I was one, one handed, you know, whipping this thing around in the air is, it just looks like someone having a mental health crisis period. Yeah. And, you know, and then my lawyer tells me that the prosecution is, wants to charge me with these felonies and I'm facing 35 years. Holy shit. Yeah. You know, and, and, um, and so since, since that March of 2022, when I got out, I've been fighting this, you know, and, and at first for the first year we were quiet about it because one, I was super ashamed and just embarrassed that this had happened. You know, like I go from being this super high performing individual, you know, as an operator, uh, intelligence contractor for JSOC 
and then running my own defense contracting company to someone who's being looked at as a criminal and treated worse than they treat murderers. You know, like there's, there's murderers getting out on, on almost nothing, you know? Um, and, and so for the longest time, I just didn't know how to really deal with it. And, and I put everything into the hands of my lawyer who was fighting this. And, and we had the impression that the district attorney and the prosecutor would be willing to work with us to figure out how to either reach a plea that wouldn't destroy my life and mark me a felon and make me, make it impossible for me to continue earning for my family. Um, you know, with my security clearance and all these things, uh, you know, so that was our goal and the, the district attorney strung us along for over a year. And then, uh, and they were, they were playing some games. Um, and then ultimately it came down to, nope, you're going to trial. You're going to face a jury trial, uh, you know, 35 years hanging over your head now. And, and at that point I, I knew that I had to do everything in my power to fight that. And so I had to go public, um, you know, with my story and, and thank God I did. It is the best thing that has happened to me. It's allowed me to grow as an individual and find true healing. Um, you know, I, I paint this picture of like, I was in this like victimhood state, but I wasn't, you know, like the first place I went when I got out of jail was to the VA hospital, uh, back up in Virginia where I live. And, and actually it wasn't, I learned my lesson with the, the clinic I had been going to in Fredericksburg and I found a clinic out in Martinsburg, West Virginia. They run something called the Hope Center, which is uh, actually one of the, the best PTSD uh, facilities through the VA for veterans of the, the OIF, OEF era. And, um, and so I've been under you know, the care of a psychiatrist, psychologist at, at this clinic um, you know, since then. And <clears throat> in addition to that, I've undergone some pretty intense and rigorous treatment, yeah. uh, not only for my, you know, PTS, but for my TBIs. And, um, you know, I, I chose to not be a victim. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it's damn good to hear. It's, it's a harrowing story to say the least. I mean, that's fucking wild. Uh, was there a point um, throughout this entire process where um, there was any involvement from the VA or, or an accountability piece where they said, hey, you know, in them contacting the district attorney or, or has there been any correspondence from them saying, hey, we fucked this up and here's documentation on this? Has, has any of that happened? Uh in in a manner you know there is there's no complete ownership of we caused this uh and you know i had to file a lawsuit against the va obviously i mean it is but well go ahead no you go ahead uh but the the psychiatrists and psychologists that i'm engaged with at this hope center uh they have written letters down for for the da um for the prosecutor to look at for the state of north carolina to look at that outlines exactly the cause of it. Basically saying in, in their words or your words, whatever, that uh, he had a TBI, we didn't diagnose it. He was diagnosed with PTS, so we prescribed this medication that's contraindicated with TBIs, which caused 
this and that's why that happened i mean is it that they they haven't owned up to that part of it yet um but they have said that the medication that he was prescribed caused this yeah um and and it was categorized uh as a brief psychotic episode which is in the the dsm which is the the manual that governs mental health and yeah. and the various aspects of that uh you know so this this is a a thing it's yeah. it's a real thing that yeah. happens um and you know the the pharma pharmaceutical company has hallucinations and psychosis as one of the major side effects of yeah. this man um <clears throat> not to violate any hipaa laws but uh did the psychiatrists and psychologists that you've been seeing since then did, have they put you on any medication uh so they uh my psychiatrist is is amazing she's uh very understanding of my desire to not be on pharmaceutical medications uh as as a like primary kind of pathway yeah uh and so weed and mushrooms then? <laughs> <laughs> no uh it's just i want to avoid any potential for yeah. another sure. episode yeah I, I got bts from that yeah um no it's it's uh so i i am prescribed something called seroquel which is an antipsychotic uh however i don't take it i've i've taken it a couple of times right where it's like uh i've noticed you know i i know there's a there was a pattern right where it's a lack of sleep extreme stress um and then i just those underlying conditions of the pts and tbi right so that culmination of things with the medication is what caused the the difference between taking it and being okay to psychotic i got you um and so uh, you know when those factors of lack of sleep and extreme stress build up then i have that seroquel <clears throat> to to aid me and keep me level and, and so i've you know i had a uh for instance when i was in kiev um you know I took a pretty, you know, calculated risk in going there in an active combat zone. At the time, uh, there had not been any, you know, like active engagements into Kiev beyond just that, that initial push. And so I felt pretty safe there um, until I wasn't. And I was there the, the day, October 10th, when Putin sent cruise missiles into the city. Oh, wow. And so, you, so you were there after this happened? I was, I was there when it happened. I like, mean, uh, after the incident happened. Oh, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. building my company, yeah. right? Um, and uh, one of those missiles landed right across the street from us, wow. you know? And so, you know, that put me back in a kind of that PTS, like flight fight or, or flight, flight, yeah, state. And, um, you know, coming back from, from Kiev after that, it was, that that's a whole nother story, right? You know, but uh, coming back from that, I was, you know, kind of noticed some of those symptoms happen. My sleep was getting disrupted again. And, yeah. um, so that was an occasion that I, I took that Seroquel and I had it yeah. right. Um, you know, and I have, uh, uh, another prescription which is Valium, um, which is essentially a complement to that Seroquel to like control my sleep. So it'll knock me out. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's been occasions where, you know, just my mind gets racing yeah. and I just get locked into the, an idea or uh, you know a project or a passion right and I'm just trying to 
crush through it, you know, in a sprint kind of mentality. And my wife keeps me in check though. You know, she's like, Hey, you're, you're pushing the envelope too much. Take Chill it, take it tonight. Yeah. You know, so. Man, that's a, that's a wild ride. Um, so now what, when, when are you going? Like there, there's been no movement in terms of making accommodations for any of that. They're saying, no, you're going to trial and this is what's happening. Yes. Yeah, so that, uh, began to unfold this February. Um, <clears throat> essentially their, their backlog of cases got to a point where they had to make a decision with mine and they chose to take the, the path of taking it to trial. And they set a date of June 5th. Um, you know, so I, I knew leading up to this that I was going to go down and face trial. And then the, the week of trial, our, one of our expert witnesses um, was hospitalized. And oh. so we had to file a continuation uh, requesting that we push the date back, you know, and, and be given that uh, right to a, a fair trial, essentially. Can I ask what happened? Uh, she's older, um, you know, so she had some medical complications that just put her in the hospital. Um, so she's a, a private psychologist. Oh, okay. Um, uh, from your perspective, um, and I guess your lawyer's perspective, how, how prepared do you guys feel? How do you, are you, are you worried? I mean, I'm sure you're nervous, but I mean, what, how do you think it's going to go and, and how do you guys feel? I feel great. Uh, so <laughs> when we filed for that continuation, the prosecutor, chose the date of September 11th for my trial. On purpose? On purpose. Oh. And uh, it's been a blessing in disguise because <clears throat> how is that going to look to a jury? You know, the state of North Carolina is prosecuting a GWAT veteran that has injuries from the global war on terrorism that he joined because of 9-11 and had an incident occur because of those injuries and is now facing felony prosecution on 9-11. Yeah. Um, so it, it is in our favor. They've been playing additional games since then because they realized that they made a mistake in filing for that date. Uh, and they've, they're trying to play additional games now. And we had just filed another motion yesterday uh, to force, force their hand to have the trial on this date because my, my security clearance is in limbo. Um, I had to self-report after this, you know, and, and that opened up a, an investigation that can't be closed until these charges are finalized Yeah, and or dropped or correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and we tried everything. There's a, a veterans treatment court that is state funded that this is perfect to be transferred to. We have a letter from that veterans treatment court stating that my case qualifies to be transferred there and that they will handle it accordingly. Is, the, is it the district's att district attorney's call as to whether or not that happens? Yes, 100%. And does he just have a hard-on for you or what? I, mean, I, I have no clue. Uh, he's a veteran himself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of things that I could speculate, but ultimately I am going to face this this trial. We've had pressure come from pretty, pretty prominent individuals uh, you know, in our Congress, uh, state governments involved, you know, to try and push to get it to veterans treatment court, you know, cause what kind of a message are we sending? Um, and, and it's, 
bigger than just me. This is indicative of how veterans are being treated across the board. And it's incredible the stories I've heard since I went public uh, from other people facing similar and worse situations. And, and so, uh, you know, I've just kind of come to terms that I will face that trial on 9-11. Um, they have no witnesses. The victims have already uh, filed affidavits. They want no charges pressed. The cars that were hit? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the individuals that were in those cars. Um, there's, uh, you know, we have four, four different medical opinions that were individually uh, crafted, and they all came to the same conclusion that it was a brief psychotic episode brought on by this medication. Um, I have genetic testing that proves I'm not actually a candidate for this medication because I don't metabolize it correctly. Um, we have the, the FDA studies. We have uh, all of the treatment that I've undergone since then without the court trying to tell me that I need to go do this. I know I do, and I did, and I've healed from that. Um, and I continue to work on myself you know, daily. But, uh, you know, so we have all of this going forward. And I, I know that at the end of the day, all I got to get is one person on the jury to understand what happened and that these are facts. And it'll go to a mistrial. Yeah. One of 12 has to just not disagree or not want to convict me as a felon. And it'll go to a mistrial. And then at that point, the state will ultimately probably just send it to the Veterans Treatment Court. Um, or all 12 jurors see the facts, see the case, and all the charges are just dropped. I'm found not guilty. Yeah. Um, which, which is my hope is yeah. that it goes that direction. I can just be done with this and, and move on. And if that happens, then everything back to normal and like doesn't fuck with your security clearance. Right. I'll, I mean, I will have to go through all the hard work of yeah. expunging everything and just getting it all cleared and finalized. Yeah. Um, but but that is the quickest route. Yeah, I got you. Man, what can we do? Uh, so there is one final hope. The governor of North Carolina, uh, Governor Roy Cooper, does have the power to expunge the charges beforehand. Oh, okay. Uh, so I've written a letter to the governor already, uh, and I made that letter public. So United American Patriots is a nonprofit uh, organization that's been supporting me and helping me and my family through all of this. Uh, and UAP.org is their website. You can go find my letter to the governor on there. Uh, and there's also a call to action for others to intercede, uh, you know, and advocate for me to the governor. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty seamless process. It's all electronic. You know, you can in, engage that way. And um, I would just, you know, ask anyone listening that, uh, you know, has, uh, you know, just a soft spot in their heart and understands veterans and, you know, maybe what we're going through, please reach out, you yeah. know, do your best because this is not how things should go. Yeah. Um, we need to set the, the correct precedent because I think that if we do our best to strengthen the veteran community, heal the veteran community, that is a pathway to restoring America to its roots and its values. Yeah. And, and we got to take that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what were the names of those uh, two uh, links? Uh, UAP.org. And what was the other one? 
so that on there will be the okay. the letter to the governor and the link for how to submit okay. your your letter to the governor. And we'll we'll put that on our uh, description of the uh, of the episode. And, and what we'll do, we'll have this come out um, next Sunday. So if you just a few days before before yep. the trial actually goes, so it'll it'll get out before then. But uh, man, what a wild fucking story! Um, now that you've been through all that, obviously the trial is, is still coming up, but what's, do you have a takeaway from, from all of this? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, my, my biggest thing that I've realized from all this is that PTSD and TBI, those invisible injuries are very real. And, uh, you know, I was just reading this study that, um, that's put out so vets is uh marcus capone's uh organization uh they're looking at the the evolution of pts and how that's been uh handled diagnosed and and addressed over the years and through you know world war one world war two vietnam all the way up um and the numbers continue to grow as the conflicts move through time so more and more of the uh, combat veterans that are experiencing, you know, heavy combat and, and even sometimes just, you know, non, non uh, combat arms MOSs, you're engaged. There is no front line, right? Like, or I mean, everything is the front line. Uh, there's no flat, yeah. you know? And so uh, there's, there are just exponential numbers that we're not even really seeing. You know, we've just seen the tip of the iceberg. So we're not seeing what's below yet. Um, and so my takeaway from that, I started a nonprofit to address this because, uh, you know, I, I see it as the sleeping giant that is a problem if we don't address it correctly. And, and there are so many opportunities to heal without having to face the things that I have, yeah. you know, and, and stories like mine. Yeah. Um, so I would just say anyone that is out there hurting, and sees, you know, any potential for being in that space, get help, go talk to your brothers, talk to, talk to people that have been through it and are finding their, their pathways through it and, and emulate that. Yeah. Well, I couldn't, couldn't set up better myself. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you've gone through all this, man. It sounds like a, just a whirlwind of, uh, of shit, you know, that, uh, that you've had to put up with, man. I, I'll certainly be following it uh, again. I'll I'll go on there and and support you, and and I hope that everybody listening does. Because um, man, what a what a shit sandwich. Um, well, I wish you nothing but the best. I can't thank you enough for coming. Um, I know it's it was kind of a short short timeline to get you here and, and get it get it out before the trial. But uh, man, I uh, I just I'll be pulling for you, and, and I hope if there's anything I can do other than what we've already talked about, uh, please let me know. And and I hope everything goes well, man. Absolutely. Um, in keeping in tradition with uh, all guests, we do have some parting gifts for you here. Oh. Uh, also, have you ever, has anybody ever told you you kind of look like Rob McElhinney? No. Do you know who that is? No. From uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia? There's, there's a resemblance. Which one, which one is he? The dark-haired guy. Uh, Charlie? No, no. He's oh, the short okay. one. He, I mean, the more jacked. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bigger guy. But um, there's glimpses of it, you know, for, for sure. But anyway, not a doppelganger, but there's a resemblance. Anyway, uh, this is from uh, Champion oh, Choice wow. Silver and John Johnston out in California. 
That uh, is incredible. Yeah, so ma- maybe wear that to the trial for a good luck charm. Who knows? But you know, you know what? I'm going to do that. Dude, that would be especially because awesome. it's got my name in there too. Yeah, that would be awesome. Fucking a, I'm doing it. Rock and roll. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, you know, I mean, thank, thanks to them. I mean, they they make that happen. That's John and uh, and Champion Choice. So thanks to those guys. I appreciate your continued support of all the guests. So we wouldn't wouldn't be able to do it without them. So, uh, and in that same vein, thank you to the listener for, uh, you know, we wouldn't be able to bring you amazing stories like this if it wasn't for your unwavering support week after week. So, uh, thank you to you guys for tuning in. And uh, again, appreciate you coming. Is there anything else you want to throw in? Nothing I can think of. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for uh, tuning in. And until next time, this is Mike Drop. was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to chumbacasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.